Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Reality Bites. Excellent. Hello. Welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always, um, and now always remotely, <laughs> hopefully not forever, but it's definitely been the trend for three months now. Um, but what we have, we may not have the same lives we had previous to COVID-19, but we still have movies. They're still readily available. We still have Rotten Tomatoes to cut down to size. Yeah, we still have the internet. The, well, of course. I don't know what we would do without it. Uh, there's that South home. Park episode. That's Yeah, the South Park episode, like the Grapes of Wrath. That's what it would turn into if we didn't have <laughs> the internet. Uh, again, my name is Alex. I am joined by my co-host, my friend Julio. As we march on, hashtag Winona Virus 2020, we march on in the summer of Winona. Coming to um, possibly the most pivotal stop thus far this summer. I know we did Beetlejuice, but as we discussed on that episode, that's certainly not the Winona Ryder show like this movie is. Nor was it, I think, um, it was certainly not a Winona Ryder vehicle. And this this movie is like uh, one of those motorcycles with a side cart because it's a double vehicle. <laughs> It's a two-story camper. So one camper or one story is Winona Ryder, and the other one is Ethan Hawke? Ethan Hawke. Okay, okay. Yes, yeah. No, because Ben Stiller is just like, um, he's like your friend that your parents let you bring on the road trip, and, you know, <laughs> he's charming, and he's got his gap teeth, and he has some really funny things he says and does, but he's not the focus of it. He's not part of the family. We're just letting him no. hang out. Yes. Uh, of course, we could be talking only about the 1994 uh, 90s classic Reality Bites, um, directed by the aforementioned Ben Stiller. And of course, the reason we're all here, starring Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke as well, standing at a um, shit. What is it on Rotten Tomatoes? 65. Okay. I was going to say meager, but meager is not the right word to describe that. I think respectable would be the. <laughs> proper way to label that so a divisive 65 um, percent a, di a divisive um so before we get into it like i said there's much to discuss between the soundtrack the cast the plot i mean there's going to be a lot of uh it's going to be a heavy episode of the contrarians but before we get into that and before we get into the regulars uh we got some catching up to do some ha housekeeping uh, in that last weekend, we were fortunate enough to take part in the live stream for The Cure, which was a great time. We had talked about 
the uh, also 90s classic Sliver. A uh, little bit different of a tone on that one. Slightly but, different. Uh, I would love to see the, the Ben Stiller version of uh, Sliver. Uh, I'm trying to think, like... No, I wouldn't. I, was, <laughs> I, I, I view Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke in, in a more innocent light. I don't want to see them having like attack sex with each other. No, no, no. It would be like uh, William Baldwin and Sharon Stone having sex to My Sharona. Yes. Yeah. And, I can um, roll with that. You replace uh, Tom Berenger with Janine Garofalo. Just, <laughs> she's the killer. Anyway, Sliver, here nor there, live stream for The Cure was a great time. And Julio, uh, you want to give us a recap of what all went down and what we were fortunate enough to accomplish with them? Uh, so, so I mean, first off, if you missed our, our segment, worry not, because good old Nick from the Epic Film Guys has uploaded pretty much every segment that took place uh, during the live stream uh, on their YouTube channel. So if you look on our our show notes, we will uh, link directly to the video that covers our segment. But uh, also, you know, you can just go to the Epic Film Guys YouTube channel and just check out all the guests they had, all the all the podcasts that contributed. Uh, on our segment, it happened right after they had hit their first goal. So... When you play our, our segment, it starts with just like everybody celebrating uh, that that they hit the the ten thousand dollar goal, and then after that, when we came in, you know, they pushed it to twelve thousand, and then eventually fifteen thousand, which they also hit over the, the remaining two days. So a grand time was had by all. Uh, as you might remember, we mentioned it uh, a couple episodes ago. We did uh, you know a couple prizes we wanted to give away. We have the the Blu-ray for Sliver that will be signed by Alex and I as soon as uh, it's it's okay to do so. And mm-hmm. also we have my notebook full of contrarian's notes from uh, our Glow episode until Sliver. And so we were going to raffle those. And the way it worked was for every $5 you donated, you got a, a raffle ticket. So I went through the video and uh, I picked out the nine people that donated during our segment. There were three other donations really early on, but that was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was the guys from the the previous segment to ours who were just kind of like donating because, you know, they wanted to and they couldn't do it in their segment. So the nine qualifying donations are Dan Bredick, Chris Yini, Gerald's wife, Gerald from Two Pieces in a Pot, who we'll, we'll be hearing from him uh, later on in this episode, uh, Jared Taylor, Royal with Cheese, who I think was uh is the host of one of the podcasts that followed after us uh sam hurley uh mario in the bar kool-aid 23 i don't know who kool-aid 23 is so if uh if he wins i'm gonna have to do some digging and finally caleb brownlee most of these guys we've known them we've interacted with them before i love the fact that they were there uh supporting our show supporting our segment and most importantly uh battling cancer we uh during our segment, Alex, and not counting the the money that I said was donated before our segment even started, while we we're like doing the celebration and everything, uh, we went from uh, ten thousand six hundred and fifty dollars to ten thousand nine hundred and thirty three dollars. That was just during our segment. So uh, we managed to raise more than we did last year. I don't remember how much it was, but it was definitely not as much as this. Uh, and it, what did you say the total was? By the time our segment ended, it was ten thousand nine hundred and thirty three. Damn. Yeah, I know. It was feels good. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, it didn't really hit me while we were doing it, because the thing is, when you're 
doing the show, you don't really see the the donations coming in. Nick does. Uh, you just kind of like hear the the sound. But but yeah, by the time that it was all over, when I was just coming down from the high of doing the live stream, uh, and I was kind of like adding up the the names and all that stuff. Yeah, we we did fine. <laughs> so that's good. That's good. Uh, you know, and I I wouldn't take most of the credit. I think it goes to uh, these guys that have created this this event like four years in a row now, and also of course the the appeal of Sharon Stone and William Baldwin, who were not present, but, you know, were there for us to talk about. So. Oh, yeah. Would have been the same without them. <laughs> yes. And uh, by the way, uh, Kool-Aid 23. Yes. That is uh, my friend Amanda. She watched our portion and donated. That is awesome. <laughs> I don't even know if she, I, I, actually, I know for a fact she doesn't own a Blu-ray player, so she's just going to have to put it on her mantle if she wins it. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that might be the, the best thing to do with a, with a sliver uh, Blu-ray. <laughs> Open, though. So that you can yes. see everything in there. Uh, much like uh, much like Billy Baldwin. Open. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, let's, let's take care of this raffle. Uh, Alex has already set it up. Uh, like I said, mm-hmm. I named those nine people that are that qualify for it, and uh, here comes the winner. All right, so the winner of the legitimately one of a kind Contrarians autographed Blu-ray copy of Sliver is Royale with Cheese. Congratulations, Royale with Cheese! I need to get your contact information from Nick. Uh, who I'm sure now that the now that the live stream is is done, he must be bored out of his mind. So uh, he he must be relishing every time somebody emails him about it. So yeah, we'll we'll get your information. I'll contact you. We'll send you the Blu-ray. We'll send you my notebook. Good luck uh, deciphering my writing. Chris Yini, who also participated this year, uh, he won last year our notes, and uh, yeah, he said he loved them, but uh, but also they were really hard to read. So hey. <laughs> <laughs> English is Julio's second language. Cut him some slack. <laughs> that's right. right. I, I write my calligraphy as Peruvian. So that, <laughs> that's what's happening. Uh, but again, thank you all so much, uh, not just for our portion, uh, but for everyone that contributed and donated for the live stream for The Cure. It was obviously a rousing success. But uh, to keep it exclusive to the contrarians, we had a hell of a time. It was a really fun hour doing that. Had a lot of good laughs and got about as thorough a conversation about fucking sliver that I think anyone could um so yeah if you listen to it uh thank you very much you can always go back and revisit it if you get a chance to but again everyone that donated and contributed during the live stream for the cure nothing but appreciation so what do we do now well now now we we dive back into the 90s okay so we have arrived at uh the year is 1994 i guess 93 would have been when this was filmed fresh into old uh, Slick Willie Clinton's presidency. <laughs> and our country was still, um, what's the way of putting it? I wouldn't say innocent. No, I wouldn't. I would say, though, that there was still some hope. But that was, of course, until Generation X uh, <laughs> began graduating college and realizing there wasn't much hope out there in the real world. So, so Wait, is this a Gen X? I mean, you- in, in, in Peru, when I rented it for the very first time, it was the translation was uh, Generation X. Okay, because it's like Reality Bites. What the fuck is that in in Spanish? You know, it's like it's <laughs> it's an idiom, so it doesn't have like an actual translation. So yeah, they went with Generation X. Um, put me in context, Alex, because you know me and history and dates and all that stuff. So, is this before or after Clinton's fall from grace? Oh, this is well. I mean, 
Depends on who you ask. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people could have said his entire political career was a fall from grace. If I remember correctly, he was the one that said, oh, God, what was it? It was that um, one of his uh, proudest accomplishments by be- when being the, the governor of Arkansas was taking his state and education from 50th to 49th. I think that was one of his like crowning achievements. Anyway, the fall from grace you were referring to is when he got a Hummer from Monica Lewinsky. And that was not until 98, I want to say, is when all that started. And then he was actually impeached. But uh, no, Clinton would have been... He still, I think, at this point, he had his cred with the younger folk. Because, you know, he was... I don't know if you do know. He was like... Um, was he the cool president? Yeah, kind of. I was about to say... And this is all... I, I don't remember this. When he was... When he became the president of the United States, I would have been four or five. So, obviously, I don't have any memory of that. But uh, retrospective research and such, um, he, like would have appealed to the people this movie's out for uh, because he like he used MTV he went on MTV when he was campaigning and you know talked to the young people and um <laughs> i imagine you know even though he was president much like when obama went and saw uh, the force awakens I-, I imagine bill clinton was in line for reality bites <laughs> you know i imagine him and hillary and chelsea he he's told you know he told chelsea you know i heard good things about sundance i want to go see this I like this and Ben Stiller guy. I've seen the two episodes yeah. of his uh, of his show, of his variety show. It shows promise. You know, that's a real possibility. What the fuck do you do as president? You, those guys probably, with the exception of our fucking idiot in chief now, uh, guys like Clinton and Obama and Bush, w, w, like they probably average like five hours of sleep a night. So, of course, Bill Clinton was going to come across random episodes of the Ben Stiller show at some point. <laughs> You know, worrying about the escalating situation with Iraq and whatnot. And he's just like, God damn. Just having him, uh, having Andy Dick cheer him up in the middle of the night. <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So if this is your first time listening to Contrarians, thank you so much for already making it through 16, almost 17 minutes of uh, retro uh, reflection rather not retrospection uh but if this is your first time listening thank you so much for giving us a try uh if you're uh, joining us again or back for more thank you as well give us a moment while we explain our gimmick here for our new listeners uh we like to rage against the rotten tomatoes machine as we say find a movie on rotten tomatoes that is highly rated uh, also known sometimes as certified fresh and make a case for maybe why it shouldn't be on the other side of that coin Find a movie typically 30% and below uh, that would be a rotten movie and make a case for its positive merit. Now, Julio, this episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain why that is? Yes. Every 10 episodes, we we shake things up a bit and we pick a movie that is neither fresh or rotten. It's just kind of straight down the middle. And Reality Bites, like we said, that's 65%. That's, that's kind of like straight down the middle. Um it's what we call a gray area episode because instead of uh, being together and either praising or trashing the movie, Alex and I take opposing views. So the way that we decided for this one is I am going to be attacking Reality Bites and Alex is going to be defending it. And then, as usual, on every episode, once we get to the second half of the show, uh, real talk, we will tell you how we really feel. And like I've mentioned in some of these, uh, especially during the summer of Winona, if you've been listening to us for a while, you probably already know how I feel about Reality Bites, uh, but Alex hasn't seen it. Uh, he hadn't seen it until just today. So I am as mm-hmm. curious as uh, all of you to find out how he feels about it. Uh, but that won't be until the second half of the show. 
All right. So as we've had with the summer of Winona, uh, we have some of our friends and also colleagues in the podcasting world sending in some of their thoughts on uh, the respective movies that we have been covering. And Reality Bites is no exception. Julio, you made it sound like this was uh, in high demand for people to get their thoughts in. Yes, I think that uh, if if I had allowed it, uh, every single person that I asked would have picked Reality Bites for their clip. Um, As it is, we have five. So we're going to play two uh, in this half and then the other three during real talk. Um, We got a negative and a positive uh, here. We're going to start with the positive from KT and OT from uh, the For Your Reference podcast. I love these guys. Hey, this is For Your Reference with your host, OT. And KT, and we have the most delightful of things to say about reality, even though sometimes it can bite, Mm -hmm. if you're nasty. What a great, great movie. Not all films have to be films. Sometimes life fucking sucks. All of these ideological philosophies that we have, um, all of these good, well-intended, sort of charitable qualities that we have, sometimes fall apart by real-life shit. A nice sort of treasure trove of stars that have been and stars that will continue to be as we learn in this movie on a date when all else fails bring up religion and this is for all of the non-practicing virgins out there the only other thing i would say is it would have been nice to see more of ethan's hawks and more of winona's riders but there you go guys thanks all right so that was the first time for them watching this movie uh they they volunteered uh to watch it when i was asking if they wanted to do something uh for us for the summer of Winona. Uh, and I mm-hmm. was uh, pretty uh, happy to see that they enjoyed it. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, Emily from Re- uh, the Tasteless podcast. You might remember her from the Alien Resurrection episode where she was a, a big supporter mm-hmm. of Winona there. Uh, not so much in this case. Reality Bites made me furious. I watched it only for Winona. That's the only reason I watched it. I think I watched it Uh, a year or two ago, recently, okay? Oh my god, I hated all these people's guts. Bunch of jerks. I definitely saw it way too late, both in my own life and in the time-space continuum. It's a dated movie in the worst way. What a bunch of whiners. But Winona is kind of at her Winona-iest, exemplifying all the reasons that we do love her. The snark, the attitude, the... Are snark and attitude the same thing? Maybe. I can't believe she would fall for a 50-year-old Ben Stiller executive man who compromises her artistic vision on her boring documentary. You know what? The documentary was bad. He was bad. Everyone in this movie was a bad person. And also, Ethan Hawke, he makes bad movies. Before Sunrise, barf. Boyhood, barf. This, barf. Winona didn't deserve to be wrapped up in this. As Johnny Depp would say, Winona forever. Um, I always appreciate uh, a subtle dig, a not so subtle dig at Boyhood. <laughs> I don't know how we feel about the, the Before Sunrise. Uh. Yeah, I was about to <laughs> say, let's calm down. Bef- I, I always get them confused. Which one? Before Midnight's the last one. Is Before Sunrise the second one? So it goes Sunrise, Sunset, Midnight. Okay, the second one's the one I like the most. Uh, I mean... I'm on the record as saying the third one is the best because it has the saddest ending. Uh, maybe maybe Emily hasn't made it to the end of the trilogy, so uh, <laughs> maybe we should encourage her to to go forward and do that. Uh, but anyway, that sets the table for what is to follow. Two opposing uh, views, much like Alex's and mine in, in 
this first segment. So uh, you want to you wanna get it started? Absolutely. Like I had mentioned previously, 1994 was the time. Ooh, it was a Valentine's Day movie, February 18th of 1994. So, uh, I mean, this would have been a perfect date movie for the prototypical 90s couple, the, the Gen X. So right off the bat, did you get the impression that we were in for some kind of like um, sex lies and videotape, some kind of artsy fartsy movie that I didn't know I signed up for? <laughs> I I got the impression that they were using that storytelling device that saves you a lot of money, which is we're just going to have the home video aesthetic. I mean, thankfully, it's not the entire movie, but I would say at least 30% of this movie looks terrible because it's just the point of view of when our writers, uh, you know, just home video camera and uh, not even like the kind of cameras that you have today. These are the cameras that you had in the 90s. So it all looks, uh, it, it's like when you plug in your uh, your old uh, Super Nintendo to your 4K TV today and it's just blocky, like pixelated to the max. That's what it looks, that's the opening of this movie. And then it happens again and again throughout it. Uh, so, no, I did not. Sex likes and videotape, at least, you know, you know that was that was film. <laughs> but, but this was just, uh, I don't know, it was just like Ben Stiller's home videos. Uh, and then my second question would be, did you think you accidentally put in uh, the Blu-ray of Joker and it cut to the uh, sequence, like the last part you left off on it on your Blu-ray player, which was the rock and roll number two sequence? Dude, it's just, uh, at this point, I, I on one hand, I don't... Here's the thing. Like I was asking you about Clinton for context before, and I guess the other question I don't know if you know the answer is like when was uh, Gary Glitter convicted? Uh, at what point did it become not okay to use rock and roll part one or part two, whichever this one is, uh, in your movie unless you're trying to make a statement against or for uh, you know sexual predators? Because I know like when Todd Phillips used it in Joker, he was knowing full well what he was doing here and did was Stiller just not up on his research or did he use it before Gary Glitter like Clinton fell from grace uh no we were a few years away from it just by a quick uh visit over to his Wikipedia page he was convicted in 1999 okay so <laughs> yeah so on off. that count at least Ben Stiller is innocent but we would have had to have been because I still remember going to ball games and shit in my childhood that would that was the rally song <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay well even if 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 he's innocent of that he's not Stiller's not innocent of just going for the for the easy uh button right he's like pushing that to to hit mm. you like with a with a quick reaction it's uh, for all its its apparent uh indie sensibilities this movie is not really indie it's just trying so hard to be because in the end Ben Stiller he's he's establishment man uh and i think that his career has gone forward you know it it became more apparent but in this case i mean he's just rock and roll part 1 or again, part two, whichever, whichever rock and roll part it is. <laughs> uh, what you're saying when you're putting that uh, at the beginning of your movie is, uh, you know, we have the money <laughs> to 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 pay for the for the the rights to play it, and and we know that it's going to work wonders on you more than an actual indie artist that we could be supporting while making this movie. Laid over rock and roll part two by Gary Glitter is. Um... Like we mentioned, these Ben Stiller home movies, we, we find out later it's a Winona Ryder's, uh, an aspiring documentarian. 
And it's just incoherent rambling that only can be provided by college students, (laughs) but done in such a convincing manner and with such great conviction because the A-team is here. And no, I don't mean Rampage, Liam Neeson, the guy from (laughs) District 9, and B-Coop. I mean, in fact, Janine Garofalo, Steve Zahn, uh, Ethan Hawke, and of course, Miss Winona Ryder, the uh, the four horsemen here come together, and they have all just graduated from college, uh, with the exception of Ethan Hawke. There's the one throwaway line about how he could come back next year and get like his remaining credits and still graduate. Um, but as with anyone who's ever graduated from, or not anyone, I should say, but as with a uh, a vast majority of us that have graduated from college, uh, that moment of realization and then reflection of what the fuck do I do now? And they have uh, about as many answers as I have had for the past 10 years. And Winona Ryder says, the answer is, I don't know. Well, spoiler alert. uh, If you think the movie is going to, and then reality bites hit the screens. (laughs) I mean, if if you think that the movie is actually interested in providing any answers, any sort of guidance for uh, people that are looking for those answers, looking for some sort of direction post-college, uh, that's not going to happen because, uh, you know, the movie is more interested in in what these four uh, these four college graduates are just doing on their free time, hanging out. Like so much of this movie is just them hanging out uh, and and just having uh, all this awkward sexual tension between them. Uh, and you know, if we were to make the comparison with uh, with the A team, I think that. Poor Steve Zahn would be uh, the equivalent of Rampage because he is miscast and misused and not to put to find a point on it, but he's kind of like the token minority in it. Mm. You know, it's like, how long did it take you, Alex, to figure out that Steve Zahn was gay in this movie? Okay, that's actually one of my notes. I said, is he supposed to be gay? Because I couldn't tell like (laughs) if that was like a shtick or what was going on. So well, there you go. <laughs> it, I, I watched the movie five hours ago and I just now found out that he's gay in the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the movie, you know, that's, that's literally why I would say he's like a token minority, right? Because he is, he, he's there just kind of so that Ben Stiller can check that box and say like, look, uh, we're representing generation X, properly we even have a gay character we'll give him the minimum of screen time but but you know he's there and and then uh well you're just knowing that you didn't you couldn't even tell if he was gay for real that just speaks volumes i think about it uh, um so going from the, the stereotype i guess i don't know if it would have been a stereotype in the moment then but the now stereotype of Anyone that graduated college uh, post-1988 being a lazy sack of shit. We also <laughs> are um, uh, met with the stereotype now of the uh, Gen Z burnouts with the contentious family dinner with Winona Ryder's parents being separated. It was weird. It, it painted kind of a picture of they know Ethan Hawke. Um, they, I guess they're just friends. It, up until this point, I, I thought maybe they were a couple or something, but it kind of makes sure to to separate them into their own categories. But, um, yeah, just it's kind of like a last meal type setup with one uh, set of parents on one side and the other. And essentially just telling Winona Ryder now, is, you got to get your shit together and figure out what you're going to do. You have to become an adult. Uh, 
which is, I mean, I don't know. It, 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 it's fine. I guess I wish that the movie had followed through with this, with this original setup, which is, you, you know, we're cutting you off. We're, uh, the dad, we know his dad gives her, her gas card and his old car. And he's like, all right, this is it. Now, now you just go on and like forge your path. And, uh, that movie I would like to watch. But that's not really what happens because, like I said, the, the, what happens is just like a bunch of bullshit with Janine Garofalo and Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller. Yeah, and this doesn't really last long. It, it's a, a scene just to kind of paint the picture that um, her parents want her to do something with her life and that she has a credit card. That can only be used at a gas station, though, which is a very important <laughs> distinction. Um, is this all to take place on the night of her graduation? It's at least the way that's kind of set up. If not, I mean, time is not very linear in this movie. Uh, we go long stretches of time uh, where it's never really established that this movie takes place over a month or three years. So forgive me if time skips around a little bit in this. Well, I but, mean, Ben Stiller likes his montages, so. Oh, yeah. And whatever next morning we're at, we're at whatever point in time we're at, we're at the apartment complex where um, Ethan Hawke lives and then, of course, Winona Ryder has her apartment with Gene Garofalo, Team Gen Z, or Team uh, Gen X, excuse me. And uh, I, the most important thing that I'm trying to lead to here is a wild Renee Zellweger appears. Okay, thank you. I, w- I was hoping that you would have noticed her <laughs> because until I rewatched uh, yesterday, I had never noticed that was her. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, such a like two seconds of Renee Zellweger, and then that's it. Mm hmm. What a waste of resources. This was her first credited movie. People say she's in Dazed and Confused, and I'm not doubting it, but I've never been able to figure out who she is in that movie. But yeah, this was her first credited performance. Uh, my next note just says Janine Garofalo is a 90s dream, which she is. She's got the the hair parted down the middle, the eyebrows, the the rapport, the quick wit. The um, she works at the Gap, so she's got that head to toe denim thing going on. She uh, she keeps a notebook with uh, mm-hmm. a list of all the guys she has slept with, which is just come on, man. Only in the movies, Ben Stiller is trying to make an accurate representation of a generation, and yet he can't stop himself from being all cute and and, and movie like. Do you know a single person? that actually keeps a list on paper of the people they've slept with and that they're like in the fucking fifties. Cause I think that Jane Garofalo was like three or four pages in. Uh, no, I, I don't know. <laughs> but again, uh, my understanding is some things are different with girls that way. I still, I don't know anyone like that. You don't have a book, Julio. I don't. And it, I, I wouldn't need a book. I would just need, I don't know. Like a, <laughs> a, a post-it, <laughs> a post-it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yeah, it took me like I'm so fucking dumb and like I'm not naive, but I'm just when she took out that book, I'm like, what is she doing? And then I like eventually just put two and two together with it. <laughs> of course, the the where my mind immediately went was the missed opportunity should have been whoever she ended up in the movie with should have been number 69 because she was at like 66 <laughs> in her in her book. It was right there, Ben Stiller, for fuck's sake. Uh, so Janine. And Winona, Team Gen X, they are driving around. I can't remember the song that they're driving to. Uh, it's uh, uh, Tempted. Yes, that's it. 
because this movie, and it, we'll get kind of into this in real talk, kind of a funny little overlap of that, but this definitely seemed like from a soundtrack perspective, Ben Stiller watched uh, Reservoir Dogs like 30 times and just was like, what are some cool songs I can get in here? But speaking of Ben Stiller, the director of this movie, this is our introduction to him. The, you know, we have um, the Diet Coke girls, Janine Garofalo and Winona Ryder in their car with the windows down, you know, just playing it as independent as they can and Ben Stiller pulls up and he's the you know the yuppie the Yankee the you know um, the businessman he's got his car phone the for those of you who may not know there were literal car phones is I think he, they started even in the 70s but they're just cars built into your phone but he's got a convertible and he's got doesn't he have like a map that he's got sprawled out across the the driving wheel probably he has so much going on and he has when he comes in driving wheel i'm so uh, steering wheel i don't know why my brain's just short circuiting right now (laughs) because you're trying to reconcile the idea that baby ben stiller who looks like he doesn't even get to shave yet uh in this movie would be this sort of powerful executive uh that he's supposed to be portraying here that is just the hubris uh that he didn't just want to direct, but he wanted to give himself one of the main roles uh, when really he should have cast somebody that at least looks the part. But uh, he does have the hair of an, a 90s executive and he's got the teeth. Obviously, <laughs> Ben Stiller eventually had his uh, the gap, the, the Michael Strahan in his teeth uh, corrected. But this is like reckless endangerment on this part, which I, <laughs> I appreciate uh, this movie being a movie that spoke to Generation X. Uh, being one that turns the idea of a meat cute on its head in that I guess she just finds his presence annoying. So she just flicks her cigarette butt into his convertible and he's driving <laughs> and then notices some smoke. And, you know, it's never explained if it's an act of revenge or what, but then he just like swerves his car into hers and runs her off the road. Um, GTA style. Yeah, but it's still in the end for all its apparent subversion. It's still a meat cute. I mean, nothing of a, uh- there's no serious consequences for Winona uh, after this, other than she actually gets to meet Ben Stiller and and get asked on a date. If you were gonna teach Gen X about the dangers of being a, a yuppie that's distracted uh, by work while driving, or the dangers of being an entitled Gen Xer that will just flick a cigarette butt onto someone else's car, uh, well, yeah, it doesn't matter because she almost finds true love this way. So. Pfft. You're not really saying anything. Well, I think it more just speaks to the idiocy of, or not the idiocy, but more of the simplicity of man. Because Ben Stiller's like, yeah, I got my lawyer. We'll just get this taken care of. And then she just turns on the charm. And, and man, I'd, I'd drop a lawsuit for <laughs> Winona Ryder. Even after uh, she breaks your Dr. Sayers action figure or statue? I, don't know. I was trying to think of what, like, the equivalent. I have a few things that how proud he was of that Dr. Sayers ceramic. When she's trying to put it back together, and he's just like, no, no, I think he's done. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Ethan Hawke loses his job. So, um, Jean Garofalo, what's her character's name? They all have very... Vicky. Vicky. Okay. Vicky says that he can move in with him, Troy. And we kind of figure out that, um, you know, not to make too many Kramer references, but Steve Zahn is essentially the Kramer of this because he's always just hanging around. Seeing what's good. Nobody knows his real name. No. No one knows what he does for a living. <laughs> so Troy moves in. Ethan Hawke. When our writer says, he will turn this place into a den of slack. Which, what the fuck is that? <laughs> oh, I 
I completely understand your words on that. There are people like that. I've I've had roommates that just are are co- like our cohesive laziness just promotes uh, an environment of slack. So I can certainly understand what she was going for on that one. And like we had mentioned earlier, just um, throughout the movie, it's not really in any specific pattern, but we keep getting these injections and um, interweavings of Ben Stiller and Winona Ryder's home movies that I guess are to add to kind of some of the commentary running throughout. It's just whenever Ben Stiller ran out of uh, anything to say, he was like, well, fuck, I need a transition to a new a new part of the story. Eh, let's just throw a video of uh, Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder eating brownies. It's just so it's such a cheap storytelling device. But the other thing is, I, I was going to ask you though, and, and you answered actually before I even asked you. So you know people like Ethan Hawke in this movie, and I do as well. Uh, one of the the main problems I have with this movie is just that it actually is behind the Ethan Hawke character. It just shows you Ethan Hawke as kind of this misunderstood uh, Gen X genius that you know, eventually finds redemption and acceptance at the end. So what the movie is doing is encouraging this sort of posturing from uh, from young people, from college graduates, where they're just like, eh, well, you know, so what if I'm a slacker? Eventually, I'm going to hook up with another writer. Yeah. I mean, he he plays the long game, and <laughs> he looks like Ethan Hawke, so he's able to get away with it. Uh, but he does have here, I mean, speaking of that, he has like my favorite, you know, depressed 90s teenager line. It, it just reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Lisa makes friends uh, uh, at the beach that are just teenagers that are so, you know, above it all and too cool for school. When she asks them, it's like one of the, you know, the POV shots of Winona Ryder behind the camera. And she asks them, like, are you excited or something? She asks if he, you know, basically looks for positive affirmation from Troy. And he says, I'm bursting with fruit flavor. <laughs> it just sounded like the most uh, burnout high schooler that's bored with a, a class assignment or doesn't want to like read his part of the assignment out loud. And it, uh, the delivery was impeccable. Continuing on, on the, um, the, the path of the prototypical early nineties, teen, early twenties behavior, they're all low on funds and they, they need to eat. They need supplies. And she remembers that she has her dad's gas card, which, uh, is good for also anything within the gas station. So they go and load up on, you know, sodas, a uh, lot of Diet Coke heavily featured in this movie, <laughs> and uh, chips, you know, what have you. My Sharona is playing on the radio in the uh, gas station. And I think the implication here was they were all super stoned. Because uh, we like. <laughs> that's a, that's the Ryder, only way that you can enjoy uh, My Sharona. Well, Winona Ryder and Janine Garofalo start dancing together, and then the clerk like turns to Ethan Hawke, and he has this amazing, just like shit-eating smile, and but also it's like this face of "I just want to get the fuck out of here." It's tremendous. <laughs> Is that a thing? Like the the gas cards that can only be used in gas stations? Was that a thing? They of were. The 90s? I remember my dad having one when I was a kid, like a BP card, which like. You couldn't really use it like you would like a Wells Fargo credit card. Like you couldn't go to Target and buy groceries with it, but like you could use it at the specific gas station chain. You can use it for uh, excessive product placement in your movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Diet Coke, Gap, uh, Big Gulp. They get some major screen time in this movie, just shamelessly. I have to say that kind of segues the big gulp plug is Winona Ryder and Michael, Ben Stiller, have their first date. And they go out to dinner, and it 
ends with them in the back of his car and she's talking about the big gulp being the greatest invention of her lifetime. And she talks about starting the day off with a 44 ouncer, which been there, sister. <laughs> and like Ben Stiller is like repulsed at the idea that someone could drink 44 ounces of soda. Uh, it's funny because that's the innocence of the, of what, like almost three decades ago where 44 ounces was like as far as you could go. And now, I mean, last time I went to a Regal, I ordered a large drink and it was like, I want to say it's like in the sixties now. It was like maybe 62 ounces. That's just like, you know, a drink as big as your head. So their first date culminates not only with discussion of the big gulp, but also been listening to Peter Frampton's baby. I love your way before it was uh, like seeing this for the first time in 2020. It's very easy to roll your eyes at hearing that song, but I'm, very sure it was not played out to death at that point. Uh, but then they start making out, and then you get voyeur Ethan Hawke, who just is walking up with his guitar and just kind of watches them make out. And uh, he's a real dick to her about it, too. At this point, you know, as a viewer, what I enjoy is it, it kind of has me guessing, because at this point, I'm not really sure if he uh, does love her, if there's anything really there between them, or if it's uh, that he's just an asshole and he hates the world. Have but you, I think uh... that's... Have you seen Bridget Jones's Diary? No. Well, uh, I mean, you, you can figure out just from me telling you. It's, it's Renee Zellweger is Bridget Jones, and uh, and she has to choose between Colin Firth and Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant being the bad boy that she's wanted <laughs> since forever, yeah. <laughs> and Colin Firth is kind of like the, the stiff, you know, properly British guy. And, uh, and then eventually, you know, for a while she's dating Hugh Grant. Eventually she ends up with Colin Firth. And uh, it's not a massive spoiler because there's like two movies after that. So the story keeps going. But uh, the point is, the in this scenario, you know, uh, Ethan Hawke would be Hugh Grant. He's the bad boy. The the obvious bad choice because like you said, he's an asshole to her. He, he's constantly being uh, passive aggressive, uh, acting, as she says, uh, like a jealous boyfriend. And Ben Stiller would be kind of like the, the square option. But, this, you know, he means well. He seems to care. Uh, but the movie, in this case, Reality Bites, is not balanced in a way where you can actually wonder uh, who's the right choice. Uh, because, like I said, Ethan Hawke is obviously the bad choice. Uh, so to me, there was no uh, mystery. To me, it was just like, okay, well, when is she going to wake up? There was frustration because I just wanted her to finally open her eyes and realize that this guy treats her terribly and she should just kind of like either uh, go hang out more with Ben Stiller or just be on her own. Yeah, but again, almost famous. Yeah, we'd have to wait another six years before we got the ending in the movie where the girl was smarter than the two (laughs) men involved in the movie. It would be Kate Hudson, of all people. <laughs> you say there would be no uh, Almost Famous without Reality Bites. Yeah, they basically, uh, the crowbar, Cameron Crowe watched this, and he's like, you know what would make this like perfect? He's like, I think there's something to this, but we got to alter this one thing here. Winona suffered through it so that Kate Hudson could reap the benefits. So Winona Ryder's job that she has had since graduating and maybe even before, we're not really sure. She works on a daytime talk show called good morning grant with grant played by uh, Frazier's dad, yep. John Mahoney. And she is basically uh, a producer's assistant. 
she's responsible for getting him his coffee and also uh, preparing his questions for his guests and whatnot. But he's an asshole. He mistreats her. Every time she tries to do good or do something different, uh, he reprimands her and lets her know, you know, I could get you out of here really quick. And even to the point of uh, some of the other producers on the show going to Grant and trying to, you know, go to bat for her and get her more exposure, which he is not receptive to at all. So she eventually gets tired of it and kind of pulls a Wayne's World where uh, she writes some really inappropriate stuff on the cards. Difference being that uh, the uh, host, Grant, actually reads these things out loud and definitely not good for his image. And unfortunately, she's fired for this. Um, so I didn't buy it because I've seen that joke done before and done better. Um, I mean, Anchorman was the first one that came to mind. I think one of the uh, scary movies uh, does it as well. And it's just the idea that somebody wouldn't know any better, you know, to stop reading how is it that you don't have like a, a preview of what you're reading before you actually say it out loud that's just uh because he doesn't he talk about how he what she wrote in the car is something about how he likes to molest little kids or something that is like some hardcore stuff and he finishes the sentence <laughs> i would stop myself like halfway through even if i don't stop myself right away so uh it seemed pretty unbelievable. And then the other thing was that I could tell. But they had already painted the picture of like she tried to give him things to say and talking points. He's like, nope, just put it on the cards. And you exactly right. The Anchorman analogy, Ron Burgundy just reads whatever's in front of him. And that's what John Mahoney did here. Right. But 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 Anchorman is like a caricature, right? I mean, Will Ferrell is not trying to play like a flesh and blood person. Whereas John Mahoney, he... He just seems like an angry man, and that's like his one uh, attribute in this in this movie. All his scenes, all, all he does is just be angry, which made me think that it was just uh, John Mahoney being angry at being in this movie, and he just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. As a real person, I just found it unlikely that he would uh, screw himself so much, especially because after the first card, he keeps reading. He 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 turns to the next one as if as if it's not clear that he's been sabotaged. He just moves on to the next one and uh, and then reads it. <laughs> so you know, if I if I find myself for some reason, I just went and read a card that was uh, designed to harm me. It made me sound like a like a pedophile. I would stop reading right away, you know, or I would read them silently. Instead, he just like an idiot. He just moves on to the next one. It was just not realistic. Well, that's your opinion, and <laughs> man. Man, and he uh, obviously is embarrassed by this. I mean, he's hoisted by his own petard here in terms of he set himself up for this. But he's also the the rudder. He steers the ship. So he gets Winona out of there. She's done. She's fired. So it's just more apathy and general um, just dejection of life at the old uh, Generation X apartment. And uh, this is where, as she like begins preparing for another date with Michael, this is the initial come on, correct? This is where Ethan Hawke tries to make a move for the first time. This is where, like a creep, he just strikes when she's at her most vulnerable. I mean, yeah, he seems like a, a succubus that way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because they go out because he has to cheer her up and tell all the stories about the times he's been fired from his job. So they walk around all night. Smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and then he tries to make a move. And she says, no, 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 we can't do this. And he's like, what are you doing? And, you know, we're friends. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm trying to evolve. And it's actually one of the quotes I wrote down from the movie. She tells him, I can't evolve right now. Man, <laughs> that is such a fucking incredibly pretentious way of saying it's not you, it's me. <laughs> Uh, and sometimes pretension can be a good thing because that would be if someone hit me with that line, I would just say, you know what? I have to respect it. 
<laughs> but the problem is that it's not it's not just that because then she she backpedals. He gives her an out and she backpedals to that out because he says, "Is it that Michael guy?" And she goes, "Yes, yes, it's that Michael guy." So I would have respected her character more if she had stuck to her guns and said as pretentious as she was, say, "Hey, it's not you, it's me." But instead, she she turned it into actually it's Ben Stiller. <laughs> that he's a reason we can't uh, we can't do anything. That guy with the cylindrical hair, it was him. <laughs> the baby-faced, uh, in-your-face executive. So here we go on the super 90s montage, uh, specifically early 90s, of Winona Ryder trying to find some jobs, trying to find some work. And in this montage, we get cameos from Andy Dick, the previously mentioned Andy Dick, and as well as Keith David, which uh, I'm not really sure what the – the bleed over was there, what the, the correlation was <laughs> like the idea that Ben Stiller just had Keith David on a speed dial is endlessly fascinating. It's to me. called desperation to have at least one black person in your movie. I mean, this movie is nothing if not ungodly white, it, you know, it's uh, you have in your DVD collection. I don't cause I'm afraid it would just be blinding. Uh, with the, the high levels of porcelain and like if the light hits like a fucking crucifix <laughs> to a vampire if the light hits it the right way. So Keith David just brings one a certain class to the movie but then two god damn like I don't know how many people have had a more perfect voice than that dude. And I just love how she he like uh, essentially just tells Winona Ryder to fuck off, but he does it in <laughs> such an amazing uh, audibly satisfying way. And uh and then also the third cameo is, I think that was Ben Stiller's mom, if I remember correctly. Okay, I was going to ask you, because there's really four, because then there's David Spade. So I was wondering, what was I missing? Because I that lady, I didn't know. You know, I, I knew all the dudes, but then the older It was lady... Bill Clinton. <laughs> Bill Clinton with a wig. So, yeah, if I remember, if I read the notes correctly, or if I read uh, my research correctly, that was his mom that played in that scene. Uh, the woman that asked Lelena to define irony was Ben Stiller's mother and Mira. So that makes sense. There you go. How ironic. <laughs> I do love the, when she can't define ironic and then she goes <clears throat> and jestingly asks Troy, you know, can you define irony? And he's like, yeah, it's when the meaning is the opposite of the literal meaning. And <laughs> she just has this moment of shame. <laughs> <laughs> that's where like he, he should have said you think you're so fucking smart because you got your fucking degree <laughs> uh, I wish that there was more like that with the with the character of Troy with Ethan Hawke's character where you see that there's some brains under all the, the pretension uh, because really uh, we said before you know guys like him and I know guys like him where it's just all posturing and all he does is just quote movies and quote reference books and plays and just justify uh his his stance against the system uh but then there's a moment like that where he casually defines irony for her and you're like okay this guy if he wanted to he uh he would be an interesting character it's just that the movie's not interested in that and there's plenty of movies like that where we see the uh i mean goodwill hunting comes to mind the perceived oaf is actually uh cunning and quite intelligent unfortunately for troy we really only see that shine through here but to be fair, again, uh, if you looked like Ethan Hawke looks here in the early 90s, you could coast by with a lot. Why would you uh, try? Exactly. 
Rounding out the cameo quartet is David Spade, as we mentioned, the the manager of a Wiener Schnitzel. And again, I had no idea this was coming, having never seen this movie and knowing fairly little about it. Knowing what we know about David Spade, and you know, you don't talk about some levels of pretension or ego. I thought this was awesome. I thought he did. He was very funny here and had a really good sense of humor about himself and just the ability to act like someone who takes so much pride in working at Wiener Schnitzel, which is fine. Take pride <laughs> in your job. But like if you know David Spade, it's more of what makes it funny of him just coming across. So, you know, brazen given his position and then of course the punchline at the end is you know he's the manager and he's like there's a reason i've been here for six months um i don't have a problem with david spade i think that the the problem is that this whole sequence this montage starts with the andy dick cameo and that just taints the whole thing it's just once you see andy dick your movie won't shake it off for at least 15 minutes it's just that we've seen it happen before what was it uh the uh was it loser where he also showed up for like two minutes, but then after that, it was just, you feel dirty after. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Same thing happens here. He plays like a, I guess he's managing some kind of like video pirating operation. And just, I was just, can you can you get him out of the screen? Can we move on? But yeah, it takes, uh, you're going to need more than Tide to wash off Andy Dick stink. <laughs> and David Spade, fortunately, is not enough. Uh, but... Through this process, after being rejected, Troy has pretty much started, go- I guess, the 90s equivalent of ghosting, the early 90s equivalent of ghosting, <laughs> and that he just stops showing up at their apartment. And uh, so she misses him, and uh, she doesn't know what to do. And during all this, I believe this is when Michael goes to New York for a while for a conference of some sort. So essentially, this heavy wave of depression has hit our dear Lelena, and she just finds basically like a psychic or some shit to talk to on the phone. And this is what I meant when I talked about uh, time being very loose in this movie in that she's on the phone and you think it, that she's just been talking overnight, but then Janine Garofalo is there with a phone bill and she's like, hey, this phone bill is $400. What the fuck? So it's like, has she been talking to this person for like a three month? weeks or a month? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that the... All that Ben Stiller cared about was getting to the punchline of like, oh, it's $400. She's been on the phone a long time, but not really caring to figure out the logistics of just her having been uh, basically doing nothing for so long. I mean, how long has Ben Stiller been in New York? Because it sounded to me like he was just going for a little conference and he would be back. But uh, obviously, if she's been like this bummed for so long, that means that he just moved to New York for a month. Yeah, I... I I was confused by that as well. I mean, they could have just done like a, you know, a six months later type thing, but, but no. So she needs money to pay this off and she is out of work. So she devises this plan using, uh, that, you know, the aforementioned gas card that her dad lent her to, I guess what she does is have, it's never really explained, but she will pay for someone's gas with her card if they give her the cash for it. So essentially, she's just spending her dad's money and then pocketing the cash, as most people <laughs> whose parents have them as an authorized user, at least in my age range, will do. It's so convenient, though, and I don't understand why the dad didn't just give her a card. Why did you have to make it a gas card and just add it at that extra complication? You know, it's just, oh, it's just so you can have the sequence shot in a... Uh, 
you know, in a gas station, but but it just instantly dates ingenuity, her. man. That's the point. Well, her but, dad says, "I want to see some ingenuity," and so she figures this whole scam out. But she could We're have smarter uh, than our parents, man. <laughs> but she could have been ingenious with a regular credit card, right? If the dad says, "Like, look here, this is my." There's uh, there's no challenge there though. That's like fucking. <laughs> It's like playing Madden on easy or something. It's just you're you're giving it away. Because <laughs> if that's the case, she could just pay the the phone bill with the credit card. But this way, she's got to, you know, she's got to hustle. She's got to <laughs> learn what the real world's all about, and that's what she does. You know what else she does? Buys a lot of fucking diet coke. There's like <laughs> this almost becomes like a Mentos commercial at one point with how gratuitous. Like uh, she comes out carrying like two six packs stacked on top of each other. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh- She's uh she's also wearing her sunglasses entire sequence, uh, which g- going back to your point of how much time is passing, like are we supposed to believe? Because she never changes clothes; she always looks the same. So she made four hundred dollars in one day, uh, which I mean we're talking about gas prices from the nineties, no gas prices today. So that's a tank of gas then cost fucking fifteen bucks. <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I think it's unlikely, but I mean least of the problems here because by now I, if I'm not mistaken. One of the reasons that Janine Garofalo is not being particularly, uh, I guess, supportive with Winona at this point is because Winona kind of, uh, Janine Garofalo offered her a job at The Gap, like a sensible person. And then Winona Ryder rejected it. Didn't just reject it, but also kind of low-key shamed uh, Janine Garofalo for working at Gap. She's like, I'm not going to go work at The Gap. And, you know, the friendship was broken there. So that kind of stuff, to me... Again, it's a lot more interesting to see a group of people working together towards a goal as opposed to coming up with contrivances so that Winona Ryder would be alone at this point in her life. She she rejected Ethan Hawke, so Ethan Hawke is gone. Uh, she she kind of uh, offended Janine Garofalo by making fun of her job, so Janine Garofalo is gone. Uh, ben Stiller decided to fuck off to New York, so now you know he's gone. It's all very convenient you know, to put her in that very specific position that the, the script needed her to be when it would be more believable if she had all her friends rallying behind her and she still couldn't get a job and she still couldn't get her shit together. And on top of that, Jean Garofalo is being tested for AIDS because she had a friend that came into contact with it. And this is where the the book, the black book of uh, you know, her 66 previous lovers comes into play because she looks at it longingly and uh, not longingly, but more of remorsefully. And, you know, while she's waiting on the results of this test, she looks at it and you you know, can just read her expression. Great acting here by Jeanine Groffalo. She realizes there's a possibility she's going to have to contact everyone on that list and let them know that, you know, this could be a possibility. That's a lot of phone calls and the phone bill is already pretty high. So I can see how that would be a problem. She'll have to go to the payphone. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, I don't disagree. I think that this this scene and then a scene with Steve Zahn later uh, are actually the high points of the movie because they they actually deal with stuff that would be happening in real life. Like it, it's actually set in the real world, right? When you're as promiscuous as as Gene Garofalo is here, well, you're kind of rolling the dice every time, and it makes sense that at some point you would have to go get yourself tested. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't really care. The movie is kind of like we're not a writer's character where she's just oblivious. We see that one moment where she takes her to the clinic and mainly so that she can like have it on her documentary. And then uh, then we just don't hear from it again until, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later. It's just that uh, it's really not where the movie's priorities are. Ben Stiller is more interested in 
the fucking love triangle between himself, Ethan Hawke, and Winona Ryder. And and that does the movie a disservice. So Lelena is finally able to confront Troy about, you know, his ghosting and whatnot that's been going on as he comes back to the apartment. I, I guess just to pick up his guitar or something, but he's got a, a date with them or a girl that he had met at the club and you know they're gonna go off and do what premarital teens and early twenties do. But this is where Lelena takes it, you know, into her own hands and just kind of cuts a scathing promo on him about how he's <laughs> afraid of commitment and you know he's just a succubus and doesn't contribute to society at all. And then he retorts, you know, that just the typical, you know, you're part of the establishment, man. You're trying to cut me down. All the while, Gene Garofalo and Steve Zahn are just like, come on, man. Can't we all just be happy? Gene Garofalo actually tries to be the peacekeeper in this and just basically kindly tells them, you know, just fuck off and go to your separate quarters. Uh, it was, it was, it's probably the most disturbing moment in the movie when they're trying to leave. Gene Garofalo is trying to take Winona Ryder out of the apartment and uh, Ethan Hawke blocks their way. As if he was, what was his plan there? Was he actually going to get violent? It's uh, that that freaked me out. Like, yeah, he he's such a fucking sea sucker in this movie, man. Like <laughs> that uh, that, and there's something that comes up a little bit later on in the movie, but that scene in particular, like made me want to punch the Troy character in the face. <laughs> he is extremely punchable in this movie. Uh, it's a uh, in a way, it's the the prequel a precursor um, spiritual if nothing else to his character in boyhood which turns out to be kind of you know also a slacker that end up having kids <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but here is the same thing right he he's just uh he's very full of himself he thinks he has all the answers uh, he has no professional path ahead of him to speak of he just uses the excuse of having a band as as a uh, a reason to just basically not do anything else because you know his the art is what's important and uh, and yeah here I think it's where, where he shows his true colors when he gets uh, so mad at her that he actually looks like he can get physical uh, and then thankfully you know uh, Steve Zahn and, and Janine Garofalo managed to just diffuse the situation a little bit but uh, to me that's a point of no return like after that I have not that I was not that I care much for uh, the Troy character before but after he does that I'm just I'm done you know I just can't yeah. I'm just waiting for Winona to uh, to basically catch up and I mean not that she's entirely innocent because she definitely uh, she has some nerve to get on that high horse and just uh, <laughs> you know cut that promo on him when she's basically kind of doing nothing since she lost her job right uh but but still i i'm not rooting for these two to get together and the movie wants me to so that's a problem i think that's a fair statement too of like how dare she get on her high horse about that at the same time you got to remember uh these are people in their early 20s that have just graduated college and the weight of the world is crushing them and so i i kind of pardon some of their behavior they're always Um, on the high horse (laughs) yes they never get on it because they're always on it while you were going on there about troy and his whole personality and approach in this movie it made me realize how i knew him from somewhere troy dyer is uh a way less charming lewin davis it's essentially the this the same idea the only difference would be i guess uh Justin Timberlake would be played by Janine Garofalo in this movie. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he definitely has that same spirit and attitude and punchability in this. So Steve Zahn would be the Adam Driver character. Just kind of like in the background <laughs> trying to do some good work. 
Yeah, I guess so. That would make sense. So we weave in and out of a night with Janine Garofalo and Winona Ryder. We find out that Janine um, has rethought her life throughout this whole process and that, you know, she has all these past lovers and sexual escapades, but she's terribly alone and once more. And we also get word from Michael, Ben Stiller. Uh, he calls back to uh, Lelena and explains, hey, I know we didn't really talk too much about this, but I took your tapes and sold them to some executives here and they love them. So we got that. So everything's happy on that end. He blurts out, I love you like an idiot. And she's like, what? <laughs> He's like, nothing. Um, uh, it's so, I mean, they had cell phones back in, you know, the mid 90s. Didn't they? Why is he using a payphone like a chump? I mean, he's a he's a an executive. Even if he doesn't have a cell phone, why isn't he calling from his office? Uh, it, the answer is just so that he, there can be interference, so they can't have like a proper conversation uh, with Nona and him. He didn't have reliable uh, cell phones in 1993-94, though. So let's calm down. <laughs> well, but uh, he's he's an executive from In Your Face TV. <laughs> <laughs> they should have had the prototypes for the iPhone at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, as Julio mentioned earlier, we discover that Steve Zahn's character is gay. Um, and so now that I know this was really part of the movie, we get kind of a heart-wrenching scene about his uh, parents really not accepting it or him. And that's very sad. Well, yeah, and it's basically, show me more, Ben Stiller. This is what I came to the movie for. This is It's used only to, you know, basically to be a transition in between Winona Ryder's love life scenes uh you know we see what like five minutes of this steve zahn dealing with the fact that he just came out to his mother and his mother basically kicked him out of the house and uh and then it's never addressed again towards the end of the movie you kind of see him like talking to some dude but that's it there's there's nothing uh nothing of relevance that happens and this is arguably the most important thing the most uh world-changing thing that happens in the movie this guy uh coming out to his family and it just happens in the background because, you know, there's more more important things going on. Like, I don't know, uh, Ethan Hawke playing with band or, or Winona Ryder just making more phone calls. So Michael, Ben Stiller is back in town. He is readying Winona Ryder. They're going to go to a party that's going to basically show a preview of what her tapes have become, her documentary and what her show is going to be. Uh, so he comes to pick her up and she looks just ravishing, ready for a night on the town. And uh, unfortunately, he shows up when Troy's there. He's the only other person uh, there. And he begins cutting down the appearance of Winona Ryder and the way she's dressed up and kind of questioning why she's doing that, which leads to a pretty awesome DiCaprio and Matt Damon at the end of Departed standoff between <laughs> Ben Stiller and uh, uh, Ethan Hawke, which in an amazing, I guess, I wouldn't, I'd have a hard time saying Ben Stiller is a good guy in this movie, but at the same time, a very noble 90s line of, what is your glitch? <laughs> I am so glad that you didn't say, uh, you didn't call his parting shot the, the noble line, because I, I thought that, uh, you know, they were having a back and forth, and I think that uh, the, the jury was out about who, who was winning. And then uh, the last exchanges... Uh, Ethan Hawke says, you don't know what she needs. And then close up on Ben Stiller as he delivers the line, I know what she needs in ways that you never will. 
and it's 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 like a horror zoom. It's something that would like when Jason appears or like Freddy. It's that zoom of like he turns around and then right up to his face, and then he he hits him with the line, and then Troy has no witty comeback. He's just sitting there, left to wallow in his own crapulence. <laughs> but it's it's so it's framed as a triumphant moment. But to me, it's probably the grossest thing that Ben Stiller has done in this movie because so far I was kind of on his side. I was you know, he was not he was not the coolest and he was not the hippest, but his heart seemed to be in the in the right place. He was definitely treating Winona Ryder much better than uh than Ethan Hawke was. But here in this sequence, even if I give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm like, all right, he got tricked into uh, participating in a dick measuring contest within the hawk. But at some point, you would think that he would have the 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 brain to walk away from it without kind of uh, uh, you know treating her in a way that makes it sound like she's uh, his property, right? The, the right mm-hmm. thing to do is to be is to just say, all right, you know, I'm gonna step out. And and you can deal with this bullshit and you know just catch up with me. Uh, I'll, I'll be waiting. You know it's like it, it was. Winona has enough agency. She's a she's a woman of the '90s. She can handle Ethan Hawke. She doesn't need Ben Stiller to fight her battles. But instead, what he does is just you know put on that suit of armor and and just grossly you know try to defend her. Which and it really what's happening is he's really defending his own ego. And overall, I just again I'm supposed to be torn. Between these two guys, you know, it's like, who's she going to go with? And But really what I want is just for her to get the fuck out of there. Well, you won't have to wait too much longer because they get to this <laughs> uh, this party and this uh, original screening of her show. And we see it's essentially the precursor to scripted reality television. And her work has been completely destroyed. And uh, depending on whether you believe him or not, Ben Stiller said he didn't know that's what it was going to be. Uh, I tend to believe him in this situation. At the same time, he works for a television network and, you know, tries to explain to her why it is the way it is. And now it's completely altered the narrative of her work. And, uh, you know, it's product placement Palooza. And he like tries to movie. explain. You, yeah. And tries to explain, you know, it's like meatloaf that sometimes you have to, you know, change it to make it different. And Winona retorts loudly and proudly. It was never meatloaf. And... Essentially, she just leaves Ben Stiller there to basically reflect on what he's done. Well, the thing is, he he is right, though. He, I mean, yes, he sold out in a way, but the the product that he has delivered is a hundred times more entertaining than what she had. What she had was just home videos of herself and her friends with no rhyme or reason, and he actually gave them a purpose in in a way. I mean. He's not wrong. Nobody was going to watch the documentary that Winona Ryder was making. But if he cuts it up and puts some some poppy songs on it, uh, you know, the audience of In Your Face TV would at least get some of it. I, I am behind him. I think that the movie doesn't give him enough credit. I, I wish that, that Winona Ryder's character had been smart enough to understand where he was coming from, even if she disagreed. But instead, she just throws a tantrum. She's like, it was never meatloaf. And then she storms off. And then he's just there left in shame. And not sure what to make of any of it. And she is a defeated young woman, which, of course, (laughs) is prime and uh, all that Troy needs to see for him to swoop in and make his move. We've established that that's that's when he strikes, when when our writer is at her lowest. So he swoops in, tells uh, tells her, you know, I'm crazy about you. They do the um, 
how I thought people really kissed in real life. The one where like you, your faces get close to each other and you kind of breathe into each other's mouths and then you touch like faces and then pull back and then go for it. Like that was all the movies I watched as a kid growing up. That's how I thought people really kissed. It's the, so, the indie movie kiss. There you go. So they shack up and then he skips out the next day. It's like, it's literally like that scene in MacGruber where he has sex with uh, Kristen Wiig. And then right after he comes, he just like lays down for a second. He goes, I got to get out of here. And then gets <laughs> up and leaves. You know, Ethan Hawke takes a little cat nap. He wakes up and it's established in the movie that he sleeps till noon every day. And then she's like, what are you doing up at 830? And he's like, well, I got to go. And uh, she quickly realizes this is... Um, her worst nightmare come to life in terms of fucking everything up. So except that we could all we could all have told you, told her that this is what was going to happen. Oh yeah, easily. Um, so this love triangle comes to a definite head. It looks like Troy's band has a gig that um, Lilena shows up to, and Steve Zahn and Gene Garofalo are obviously like, "Man, why'd you do that? That's going to ruin the friendship." Ethan Hawke is all trembling and nervous when he sees her walk in. Ben Stiller, Michael shows up. He's like, hey, I'm sorry. Here, I got these plane tickets. We can go together uh, and we can, you know, present the tapes the way you want them to be. And we can make sure this gets taken care of. Then she gets pulled to stage left. Ethan Hawke wants to talk to her. And he explains, you know, uh, I'm sorry I ran. I freaked out because I actually feel things for you. You, you know, you want to be with me, but, you know, I could possibly leave at any point in time. And, you know, so you need to take a risk on me. Just really given her, you know, he's basically putting the, the, the onus of the entire situation on her. It's like, I don't have to change a bit, but you do. <laughs> so rightfully, she tells him to, you know, go push rope up a hill. She also, she does this really cheap move, which is uh, the movie never addresses the fact that she's basically two-timing uh, Ben Stiller. Because they're dating, mm -hmm. and she just went and, and had sex with Ethan Hawke. But then she has uh, the nerve to bring that up when she's arguing with Ethan Hawke. Because Ethan Hawke is saying, man, I never, it, you know, I freaked out because I've never had sex with somebody who I loved before. And then she says, well, welcome to the real world. Michael lives here. Ben Stiller lives here. <laughs> that's that's so gross. Again, this is just, uh, it does not do anything for Winona Ryder's character for me to get on her side when she's basically kind of not just cheating on Ben Stiller but using Ben Stiller as a pawn in her argument to shame Ethan Hawke for having had sex with her it's just you know it, it almost makes me want to say that they all deserve each other yeah and in, the, in their own fucked up early 90s way and she goes back to try to talk to Michael and then this is where Ethan Hawke this is where I wanted to punch him in the face the most he like walks up and he's all cocky and smug and just looks at Michael and he like makes it really awkward and then tells Winona Ryder or says to Winona Ryder are you going to tell him or do I need to and uh so yeah just being an absolute <laughs> fucking prick here right after he was like basically begging her to you know be his girlfriend to go steady with him. Well, actually, I think it's the other way around. I, I think that first Ben Stiller shows up while, uh, while Ethan Hawke is still on stage, like playing one of his shitty songs, uh, which by the <laughs> way, just the way that Ben Stiller shoots him, you would think that he's some sort of grunge superstar. And, but the actual <laughs> performance is just terrible. But anyway, so Ben Stiller shows up and he kind of apologizes to Winona Ryder, makes his case. And then Ethan Hawke comes 
down from stage and joins them. And then he's like a total prick, uh, kind of implying that they've had sex. And then when our writer goes, hey, can we have a moment? And then she takes Ethan Hawke to the side. They have it out. And then she compares him to uh, disfavorably to uh, uh, Ben Stiller. Then she comes back. Right. And then. Yeah. So. Yeah, the reason I figured out that I had it backwards. So, yeah, you're right. And the reason I figured that out is because when she pulls aside Ethan Hawke, it's the hardest I laughed in, in the entire movie because it's just Janine Garofalo and Ben Stiller there at the bar and it's quiet. And then she just goes, hi. <laughs> and he just kind of looks at her like, what the fuck? We never uh, see so- anything else from that conversation. When we come back to them. They're still silent. I wish that we had come back to them and they were engaged in some sort of interesting, funny conversation. But no, I guess hi is as far as they got. So everything falls apart. Lelena runs away. She's just had a fucking enough of both of these guys. So she leaves. We get the final trade off between Ben Stiller and Ethan Hawke, where he's just like, I wish I could be like you, but I'm not. You know, I care about things. And uh, we then get uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, U2 song, which oh, I had God. no idea was in this movie. Dude, that's Dude. Th- that's that's how you know that you've just you've hit rock bottom when U2 shows up in your movie. Uh, it's the equivalent. It, it didn't happen to me because I didn't have an iPhone at the time. But I imagine that's how people felt when they they woke up one day and they had a, a weird new U2 album on their phone. Uh, that, that That's how you <laughs> oh, feel. Oh, God, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how it feels when uh, this movie has already kind of reached the, the bottom of misery. And then uh, and then Bono's voice starts crooning. And they play almost the entire song because, like, we've established uh, Ben Stiller likes their, his montages. So uh, it goes on for a full six minutes or so. Yeah, and this because of that, I had to – I was so – it's like, what other movie is this in that I love? And so I did my research during the duration of this scene and discovered that it was Contagion that features that song that I'm a really? big fan of. So Man, I need to rewatch mm-hmm. it. Uh, I know we say that. I said I was going to rewatch it at the beginning of the, the quarantine, and it still hasn't happened. It's literally the very end. Like, it's like the last thing that happens. It's, uh, well, it's the last thing in the movie that happens, and then you get like the uh, epilogue of uh, how the virus started. But oh, anyway, I, I thought it was gonna. I thought you were gonna tell me that it was that that the song was playing as you discovered that uh, that Gwyneth Paltrow had been shaking hands with the cook or whatever. No, but that would have been incredible. <laughs> um, you say <laughs> so. Troy leaves uh, to go be with his dad in Chicago. And he comes back right as uh, Lelena was set to go look for him. He relays that his dad dies and that, you know, in this moment, he just wanted to reach out and say, you know, I love you. And she reciprocates. So then they kiss. And I guess all is well that ends well. And then we get the uh, the Simpsons joke to end the movie. You, you know that, uh, you know, that Ethan Hawke has grown and turned into a productive member of society because he's wearing a suit. Cause he's wearing a suit. <laughs> <Yes>. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's so good. He's realized the error of his ways. He's, uh, it took a lot longer, but in the wedding singer, when Robbie tries to find a job in the city and he comes back wearing a suit, you know that the system has finally owned him. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, then they're kissing and I guess they're getting ready to move out and then you get the voicemail from her dad. Nine hundred dollary dues, <laughs> and he's mad because his obviously his gas card bill is astronomical. So, hold that diet coke. A typical, uh, uh, I, we use the word trope so much on here, but a happening that faded away uh, about the twenty tens. The whole thing of the one last punchline paying off something that happened earlier in the movie. 
that doesn't seem to really exist that much anymore. Likely because most comedies now are about five fucking hours long and just end <laughs> on some oddly emotional note. Or also because now if you have like a final like beat to the story is uh, just kind of like to tease out the next uh, MCU movie. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's, You're not wrong. But there's more. I don't know if you missed this. There's like one final like mid credits uh, scene where you basically get to see the show that that Ben Stiller ended up making. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's one final like stab in the back of the Ben Stiller character. Completely unnecessary because I think if if anybody ends up being sympathetic by the time that everything is sell- is said and done is Ben Stiller. I think that he was for all his flaws, he was actually actively trying to change, actively trying to be a good guy. He uh, it took him a moment, but he listened to what Winona Ryder was trying to say, and and he showed up and said, "Okay, whatever you want to do, we'll do it." And she shot him down. And he's even kind of kind to Ethan Hawke at the very end. They they have this weird bro moment before they separate. Where he, like you said, he he goes. He not only says like I wish that I was like you, but he tells him because uh, Ethan Hawke is trying to be like, oh, I don't need anybody. Everybody dies alone. And and Ben Stiller tells him if you really believe that, if you were as uh, I guess as hip and too cool for love as you claim to be, you wouldn't be out here chasing after Winona Ryder. And so I, I thought that that was a particularly graceful note to leave his character on. But of course, the movie can't help itself. So they need to end that with that final mid-credit sequence where they uh, make him out to be some sort of vindictive asshole. Because what you see is a sequence from uh, an in-your-face TV show that's basically a fictionalized version of uh, Lelena and Troy arguing. So... The implication being that uh, the way he handled the breakup with Winona Ryder was to go and make a show about it, uh, which mm-hmm. is pretty shitty. Yeah, he definitely, uh, as the director of the movie, he he gave himself a certain amount of grace, and I <laughs> and I fully respect and appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, that's I I understand I am not the right person to judge what the '90s were like for Americans in their early twenties. To me, this just felt fake. But of course, you know. I back in the nineties I was in Peru, so I I didn't know any better. I I didn't even know what a gas card was. <laughs> well, you're wrong. This was the furthest thing from fake. In fact, it was reality. <laughs> uh, what better way to to go into real talk? I thought it was a perfect segue. Thank yes. you. Reality talk coming up next. Just out of curiosity, why are you suddenly acting like a jealous girlfriend? All right. We're just trying to pay bills here, okay? So, Troy, if you got any money. Money? Oh, but what's money to an artist, to a philosopher? It's just a green-colored paper that floats in and out of his life like snow. It's nothing you actually have to, I don't know, work for, is it, Troy? No, not if you have Daddy's little gas card. You shut up. You shut up! I busted my ass to find a job, any job. You don't even bother showing up for interviews. What is it that you want from me, huh? What is it? You want me to get a job on the line for the next 20 years until I'm granted leave with my gold-plated watch and my balls full of tumors because I surrendered the one thing that means shit to me? Well, honey, you can just exhale because it's not going to happen, not in this lifetime. All right, fine. You don't want to work, fine. Don't Lady, you God want to be in a band, then be in a goddamn band. Rehearse every day, play every day, play three times a night. Don't just dig around in the same coffee house for five years. Don't dick around with her or with me. I mean, try something for once in your life. Do something about it. But you know what? 
You better do it now, and you better do it fast, because the world doesn't owe you any favors. And whether you know it or not, you're on the inside track to Loserville, USA. Just like him. Reality talk for reality bites. <laughs> for the 65%er on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, as we mentioned, directed by Ben Stiller, his directorial debut, written by Helen Childress. And starring Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke, Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, John Mahoney, Steve Zahn. The whole gang's here. Uh, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 94. Released theatrically on February 18th of 1994. Uh, budget of $11.5 million with a box office return of a little bit over $33 million. So did its part to collect. And uh, I feel we have much to discuss about this. Uh, but we also have the Contrarians Faithful offering their insight as well. <laughs> yes, we do. As I said in the first segment, we have three people that decided to send us their clips. Uh, so we're going to do positive, negative, positive. First, we have Gerald from Two Peas on a podcast. Julio, Alex, the Contrarians. I love you dudes. This is Gerald from Two Peas on a podcast. And... I've really been enjoying the summer of Winona. And Winona Ryder is very near and dear to me. I'm leaving you a couple of sound bites. This one is for Reality Bites, which is one of my favorite comedies ever. I guess it would be considered a rom-com. And it's because it came out right when I graduated high school, right when my first year, my freshman year of college. And I connected so well to a lot of the characters in this movie. I could see bits and pieces of myself in all of them. I know we're talking about Winona Ryder, but Janine Garofalo, probably my favorite part of this movie. She's absolutely hilarious. But Winona is just enduring and charming and just so cute and so charismatic. And she really embodies what I would have been looking for in a woman in my early college years and in fact what I was looking for and ironically kind of what I got my ex-wife uh, my first wife is uh, does remind me a lot of Winona Ryder so uh, take that for what you will <laughs> but I love Winona and Reality Bites I'm going to be leaving another soundbite for you for another movie that I absolutely adore her in but as far as this movie goes one of my favorites right it came at the perfect moment in my life and it was where it was just okay enough for us to start thinking Winona was hot and she was hot in the early to mid 90s for sure really still is in my opinion but I love Winona Ryder I love Reality Bites and I love The Contrarians thanks guys so I don't know that we're uh, we're qualified or even want to delve into the the psychological implications of uh you know be careful what you wish for that mm -hmm. you know you fall in love with another writer reality bites in the 90s and then eventually I guess your first wife ends up being like Winona Ryder yeah I'm guessing that uh, Gerald and I are close to the same age because I had a similar experience that we'll we'll go we'll get to in a little bit. But next, a negative take from somebody who really this is no surprise. Uh, Ryan from uh, Spit and Polish. I mean, he was not crazy about Ben Stiller when it came to uh, his remake of uh, uh, Walter Mitty. So of course he's not right. crazy about Ben Stiller. Some people are wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. That's okay. We we acknowledge his biases. Yeah. 
Hello, this is Ryan Swinski from the Spit and Polish Presents podcast. I have been burdened with the task of not only talking about Reality Bites, but also giving it a second thought. If you've ever wanted to watch a film that not only encapsulates the worst aspects of the 1990s, but also the most horrid aspects of its lead actors, Ethan Hawke, Ben Stiller, and of course, Winona Ryder, well, you've got this self-indulgent piece of trash, otherwise known as Reality Bites. Angsty, pretentious, privileged, and toxic are just some of the words I'd use to describe not just Ethan Hawke's character, but the entire film. Winona Ryder is at her worst, at trying to be the actress that has cornered the market on being quirky, yet ever so relatable. Unfortunately, this time round, she has done it to the point of alienating the viewer. Reality Bites brings out the smugness of Ethan Hawke, the I want to be an indie, but also I want to be a Hollywood director of Ben Stiller, and the twee nightmare of Winona Ryder. Yet another film in Winona's catalogue in which any, and I mean any, of the supporting characters are far more interesting than her. Harsh. Yeah, uh, kind of. I, <laughs> uh, I don't know. There, there's a couple things he said that I think there's merit to, uh, but we'll get into that. So let's uh, let's close this uh, segment of contributions with this from Robin from uh, My TV Family podcast. Hey guys, this is Robin. I'm one half of the My TV Family podcast. I want to start by saying, for all its faults, I love Reality Bites. Um, the tone of this movie is a little all over the place, but I do think it captures that quintessential 90s feel. Um, the cast, the cameos, the quotes are just fantastic. I still say to people, you are in the bell jar. Um, I rewatched this movie recently, and a few problematic bits did emerge. Uh, some of the dialogue doesn't age pretty particularly well um, on its face. The entire movie could just be dismissed as mopey white 20-somethings complaining. Uh, but the main thing that changed for me personally in the decades since Reality Bites came out is that it is clear now that Ben Stiller's Michael is the better choice for our Lilena. Uh, Ethan Hawke's Troy has that greasy hair, troubled artist philosopher thing down, which was super hot to me as a teenager, but he is really just a nightmare. Um, our Winona, uh, she just glows in this movie. She makes Lilena funny and smart. Um, she sent a generation of women to the thrift store looking for men's trousers. Um, I definitely would have liked her to be a bit stronger and have a bit more backbone in some scenes, but I think overall her portrayal of that terrifying time after college when you're supposed to start real life was spot on. All right. So, uh, you know, it's definitely... A 90s movie that captures I don't know if it captures what the 90s were like in real life but it certainly captures what the 90s felt like I think again as I said <laughs> uh, before I am kind of a few steps removed because I was not in this country in the 90s and uh, and I was not the age that these characters are uh, in the 90s so uh, yeah but but let's get into it let's do some real talk yeah and that's definitely that's something that I have to yield here I'd like I said, I was five when this movie came out, so I wasn't even aware of it. And then what I would describe as my, like, adolescent, well, I mean, I was, I turned 13 in 2000. So, like, I was a literal child in the 90s, so that's a lot of, like, that was my childhood. So, the times I would have felt that I could relate to these characters didn't come for at least 
over a decade after the movie was released. Uh, I can still relate to some of it now. The The life after graduating college is, uh, especially like at that point in time, and it's gotten really no better in terms of things per, like prepping you for actually what... You think when you're in the moment in college that like it's prepping you for what the real world's going to be, and it's not. Like it... I, I don't remember if I tweeted this or if I said it to some friends in a group chat, but like the last 10 years of my life since I graduated college have been a very uh, sobering time and in <laughs> not many good ways. Obviously, I have a lot of fr- the freedom in my life and things like that. but So I can relate to that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it definitely uh, – I can't speak to it like um, – Gerald and some of our uh, other uh, contributors did in terms of it really speaking to them at the time. Uh, what I can speak to it for is like obviously my 90s nostalgia. No secret, this would have been a year before Empire Records. That's one of my favorite movies ever. And this relies on some of the same, you know, 90s. Like I said, we use the word tropes a lot on here, but 90s happenings and uh, ways of life and. Uh, predominantly white uh, to that extent as well. And, you know, Ryan, I believe it was, used the word privilege to describe it. And, yeah, that's absolutely right. The problems these people have are good problems to have. Um, (laughs) Yes. That being said, and this is something that I've learned a lot more of, this podcast has been helpful with that. Not everything is supposed to be, you know, casino or – even to something of a more serious, I'm trying to think of the most serious movie we've done. And I know we always kind of try to keep it pretty, uh, something that we can at least jest about. So we're never going to do like fucking antichrist or, you know, <laughs> saving private Ryan, but <laughs> yeah, you know, the uh, passion of the Christ slumdog million, slumdog millionaire might be up there as one of the most serious movies we've done, but movies like that taxi driver. Yeah. N- not every movie has to be that. And you will have movies like this uh, that speak to a very certain crowd and it's not going to be for everyone. And yeah, yeah, I can fully concede that a lot of this movie is to the point of being almost pretentious or really kind of just naive, I think, because how young everyone involved with the movie was and everything. It's just, I think some people could rightly consider a movie like this to have a very uh, isolated opinion, a a very uh, isolating movie. Because if you don't relate to these characters or anything, there's really this movie's not going to do anything for you. If you don't relate to the story that it's telling, it's just like, what is the purpose of watching it? So that being said, this is the type of movie that can feel very isolating and constrictive. But if you're in that bubble, that isolated bubble, like you and myself are, this movie's fucking great. And it's... um, I guess, what did I miss about problematic dialogue? Aside from, like, some misogynistic stuff, I didn't think too much of this was like... Oh, they drop uh, multiple characters, uh, use the word retard. That's right, <laughs> that's right, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and like I was telling you right before we recorded, uh, I watched Observe and Report yesterday, which throws that word around and uh, the, the F word around pretty liberally, so I... It shouldn't be surprised that my palate was already kind of askew, but you, now that you're saying that, I I definitely do uh, realize that. Yeah, I hadn't caught it until this last time. Because, I mean, obviously, the first time I watched it, I was, you know, living in Peru, I was reading subtitles, and then over, you know, there's some dialogue that you just kind of get used to and you don't think about it twice. Uh, but then yesterday, as I was taking notes, I was like, oh, shit, 
more than once and it's always as a punchline so yeah it i I can see the problems that i think that it even though it's a movie that's made for that bubble like you said but i think that bubble it's it's kind of expansive it's it's pretty big because you know it involves people like you and people like me and we're coming from very different backgrounds so you know when this movie came out i was still a teenager but i didn't watch it until i was i mean i was an older teenager i probably watched it like in 97 or 98 so it being out for a while but to me watching it i was already in film school and uh, you know there were just so many things to connect with one of them obviously that is the fact that she's making a documentary and she has her camera and she's just recording her friends assuming that whatever footage she's getting is going to amount to something and that's how we were when i was in, in film school right we were just we had our cameras and we're recording because we knew that we're gonna shape it into something great and of course we didn't you know most of the time we wouldn't do anything with that footage that feeling of walking around thinking that what's happening to you is just like the most important thing in the planet and this is what's gonna change things that that's that's relatable as well as just to me it was such a fascinating window into american culture and just kind of thinking all right so that's what it's like over there young people sort of my age that I can relate to or listen to this type of music and they're making this kind of jokes. They have this kind of sense of humor and they have these, you know, this kind of problems. I live with my parents until I moved to the States. So the idea of having to worry about having a job to pay bills and all that stuff, that's something that to me was always in the abstract until I moved down here. To me, it felt like that was real life, even though I knew you know, in a way, I knew it wasn't. So when I watch it now, it carries a lot of nostalgia, even as I am aware, like you said, that it's like we've said before in this show, you know, it's, it's white people problems, <laughs> white people bullshit. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, a lot of it is just, uh, you know, the privilege of saying, oh, well, I'm not going to work at the gap because even though I need to pay the bills, because that's not what I what I studied for. That's not why I have a degree. That's kind of... That's uh, fucking uh, Jesse Eisenberg in Adventureland. I'm not going to work there. Because, <laughs> you know, and, and we made fun yeah. of him for that same reason. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but of course, I'm much older than those characters now. So when I, when I hear him say stuff like that, I can judge them because I have the way of so many more years on me. And I can just say, yeah, that's... I, I understand that at some point you can feel like that, but that's not a uh, an endearing position down the line. Uh, but that's fine, you know. I I can appreciate that there's this is a very uh, simple, simplified way of looking at those problems, and I can still enjoy it because it carries so much nostalgia to me. Like I I just when I watch the movie, and I watched the movie so many times when I was younger, all the quotes, all the ridiculous things, all the all the beats. They just work for me in a way, kind of like like we did with the Alien Resurrection episode where I was telling you, I know that I like this movie more than I should, maybe because it, it brings me back to that time. And the same thing, you know, we're not a writer in the 90s. I think that it's she, whether she was making a good movie or a bad movie or a, or a uh, divisive movie, she always has the, the upper hand on me just because it takes me back to just a time when watching movies was just great and I didn't have to worry too much about the real world and I could take movies at face value. So to me, when... Uh, I don't watching it as an adult. I don't think reality bites reflects reality at all, but I can see how it can kind of give you a, a tiny glimpse of what it's like to be that age, or what it was like to be that age back then in the nineties. And there are things that still carry over. I mean, the, the idea of uh, okay, I went to college, and what happens now? That's still you know it's valid now. And uh, it's funny because I watched this movie with my wife, and she was frustrated by the fact that the movie sets up this i think i might mention in contrast corner sets up this idea that all right well what happens after you graduate but then by the end of the movie it's become 
just a rom-com and it's about Winona Ryder's relationship with Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller and uh, my first response to that was like yeah but I still like it <laughs> and then uh, my follow-up was you know to be fair I actually appreciate that the movie did not try to solve the problem because it's not a problem that gets solved in like six months or however long it however much time happens takes place during during this movie i, I think that the it's a problem the, that hasn't been solved since the near 30 years ago this movie came out <laughs> yeah i think that that's just something that you you learn to live with uh, very few people graduate and go on to have their lives be exactly as they planned usually what happens is you graduate and then you end up working on something else or or you know taking so many detours to your to your original goal so you know a movie like boyhood that takes you know, years and years. Maybe could try to address that kind of journey, but here I think that it's more like the, the, I would much uh, rather watch this than Boyhood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I. But I can recognize. I think that that is genuine, though. You know, she comes out. Uh, she she kind of gets hit with the the cold, harsh reality that okay, you may have a, a degree, but that doesn't mean that you're hireable. The cold, uh, flaccid penis of reality just slaps her in the it, face. Right, and I would have. I think I would have resented the movie if, uh, or I would have thought less of it if, by the end of the movie, she had a great oh, job. Oh yeah, it'd be so had, cheap. She'd just like figure it out. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, so, movie years ago, Michael Keaton was in it. It's not. He's not the star, but uh, post grad. I think it was called. It was like uh, mm-hmm. it was similar to exactly what you're saying. But then at the end, she has like her perfect job, and I'm like, well, that's some bullshit. And that's. <laughs> that- yeah, it's. I mean, it's. There's room for movies like that, but that's. Uh, then it becomes a fairy tale. Yeah. And and I think that this movie was. I don't know how much uh, Ben Stiller was trying to make a definitive statement on Generation X, but I'm not uh, sure he was as much as Helen Childress, the the writer. Is. That's true. From what I, I was trying to find any really interesting trivia about it, it just seemed like more like. I think I read she wrote this when she was around the time she was graduating college or something like that. It, it definitely sounded like there was a lot of real life inspiration to it so much so that uh there was a real life man named troy dyer that attended film school with her oh. and subsequently <laughs> i'm sure he's flat yeah, subsequently years later uh, sued for defamation really yeah. yeah because he doesn't uh how dare they compare him to ethan hawk i was about to say i don't think he <laughs> raked in as much uh benefits monetarily or sexually as ethan hawk did from this so <laughs> um you, you were on a train of thought though so go ahead and Yes. Well, I guess I was actually winding down because I was just saying that I I don't know if society or critics or, you know, film Twitter, whatever the equivalent was throughout the ages, decided that they were putting on the 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 weight of having to be the voice of a generation on this movie, you know, or, or if that's what it set out, set itself out to be. I, I think that there's those are two very different things. If uh, and yeah, I don't know what Helen Childress wanted to do I, there's a there's a commentary on the disc I, I wish I'd had time to listen to it uh, with her and Ben Stiller feature length nice. um, yeah it's pretty cool I I did watch the a long time ago I remember watching the kind of the featurette the, the, the looking back at Reality Bites and then last night I, I watched uh, the deleted scenes which there aren't many but if nothing else I think that there's one that makes uh, the Troy character a little bit more sympathetic which I appreciate it but uh, I, I don't know I I think that a criticism that I saw when I was like scrolling through Rotten Tomatoes quotes was just that this was not the movie that it was uh, attempting to be. That this movie is not the definitive portrayal of Generation X. But 
I don't know that it was trying to be that. I think that it just, you know, it might have become that over time by its critics and its its uh, its fans were, you know, people that decided that they they saw themselves in that movie or that they saw what they wanted to be in that movie versus people that felt that that movie had no resonance with their life. But either way, I, I mean, what's the intent of the movie itself? What was Ben Stiller and what was uh, Helen Childress trying to do? I don't know. And, and I think it might be a little unfair to call it, to say that it wasn't more profound when maybe that's not what they set out to do. They just wanted to have fun and, you know, kind of give you a little bit of a, uh, like, I don't know, like a, a capsule movie of what it's some people may be feeling like when they graduate, but that's it. Yeah, they they may have just wanted to make a fucking uh, like you said a rom com, but like inject just the current setting into it. Listening to your description of it and basically how it resonated with you, I think you had said uh, on one of our previous episodes you had made the quip of uh, this was your Empire Records. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I I disagree. I think listening to that uh, soliloquy you just had, this is your Adventureland because I feel like our two. Oh, yeah. Our two readings of those respective movies, because the things you were saying, you could just replace actors and names of movies and stuff. And it would be so, so very, very similar to how I feel about Adventureland. And uh, Empire Records is just, um, you know, that's guilty pleasure movie. But (laughs) the big appeal of it is because it's cloaked in that 90s style and music. Whereas this is like similar to Adventureland. I think the... For my personal takeaway from it, the time period is not really important. I understand with this movie in particular, you know, you got your Diet Coke and, you know, the the scene with the cell phone being funny for the, the interference and whatnot. But I think the, the core of this, the story that's told could like eventually be told at any point in time. Um, I think Ethan Hawke is too much. I think he's good, but I think... In certain parts of it, he's just, he's too much that guy. And we joked about it in Contrarian's Corner. The only scene in the movie that I was not prepared for was with that part where he, like, steps up to her like he's going to do something. And, like, yep. even though I know he's not because his character is kind of a chicken shit, it still is a very tense and jarring moment in the movie. And that was, you know, that was probably one of my favorite parts in the movie just because of how guttural my reaction was to it. But that all being said... I think this would have been two or three years before before sunset or before sunrise, before the first one. Sunrise. Not going to work here anymore. Uh, <laughs> and I think as we watched in those movies, I think those that trilogy had a lot to do with him finding his comfort zone. And by comfort zone, I mean where he succeeds most and still being believable. I don't mean like he rested on his laurels with this. It's clearly, it's not just the character. He performs this with a chip on his shoulder. Like he's got something to prove. And it's, yeah, it's a good performance, but I, I agree with you that it's not the performance that the movie was, that the movie needed. Yeah. And, um, I think it also is, highlighted and that that idea is expanded because Steve Zahn and Janine Garofalo and Winona Ryder and to a lesser extent Ben Stiller obviously surround him and they're all you know I don't want to they look subdued in comparison and but they all knock it out of the park as with most things Steve Zahn is in I find myself saying where's Steve Zahn why can't Steve Zahn be in this more (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. He's obviously he was. I, I I would like to think that he would be more in the movie. He was a bigger name at the time. I guess he was he was a little behind all the others because he he has. A, I I mean I wasn't kidding. Gutierrez Corner. I, I wish we'd seen more of his of his journey. He's he's mostly in the background, and then suddenly they hit you with the this whole scene where he's coming out to his mom, and it's just you know all right, what happens next? And then he's gone. I I think the Ethan Hawke conundrum. Uh, if I didn't have such nostalgic love for this movie, it would probably bother me more because I think that, like I said, it's Rose Corner. The movie's behind him. I think that the movie expects you to really be rooting for him and Winona Ryder to get together. Unlike uh, Robin, you know, Robin said that she was all about Ethan Hawke and then she grew up and realized that he was an asshole. Uh, to me, I had him pegged as an asshole from the very first time I watched the movie and I felt bad for Ben Stiller. I, I think that Ben Stiller is not like the perfect match for Winona Ryder in this movie, but he's definitely, like I said, in the Contreras Corner, he's trying. Mm-hmm. So when the movie, uh, I think the movie treats him pretty badly and that's fine you know I, I i can live with ben stiller being uh ben stiller's character being mistreated by by the movie but the fact that the movie also kind of bends over backward to give ethan hawk a happy ending that's what bothers me more or what should bother me more but really like i said i'm just i'm all in i don't care it's funny because i watched the featurette i didn't watch it last night i remember i watched it i don't know last time i watched the movie a few years ago and uh present day ben stiller in present day you know, the cast are talking about the movie and they all agreed with the fact that when they were making the movie, they were not aware of, uh, you know, they all thought that the, the Troy character was cool. And then as they got older, you know, 10 years later, they're like, no, he's kind of a tool. And <laughs> there's really not much of a competition between him and the Ben Stiller character. Yeah, The fact that the movie still entertains me, despite that big problem, is it's, you know, that's great. But I... I just can't get behind the relationship. That said, when I was watching it yesterday and uh, it got to the end, I was able to to forgive him a little more and maybe have a little more faith in the, in him is you know really buy that he's a new man. I you know, watching it I already knew that the big thing at the end is that his father dies. So when he's on stage, you know, when our writer shows up at the bar and he's on stage, he's playing a song and he sees her and he kind of like nods at her and like raises his hand and kind of like saying hey i'll be right with you and uh but then he has to go because somebody just told him that he has a, a phone call and so at the time you're watching the movie you don't know that that's the phone call when he finds out that his father is dying but once you know that and you see how much of an asshole he is and you know when he comes back from that phone call it makes it a little bit more understandable which made me kind of forgive him a little bit for it he's still a massive Douchebag. Yeah, yeah, he's such a bad scene. It made me mad. I was like, man, fuck you. I was getting like, yeah, mad at the Well, the the way he treats her, he's like, are you going to tell him or should I or whatever? And then he like raises his eyebrows and he's like, dun, 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 dun. I was like, man, this this asshole. But but he is, uh, you know, he is that character. He's been established as being, you know, this guy that's just like socially, he likes to confront people and he's like, I believe him when he thinks that he, when he says that he, took off after having sex with her because he didn't know how to handle mm-hmm. it. I buy it because he, he seems like that kind of guy. Uh, but when you add the extra uh, element of, oh, he just heard that his father is dying and he's going to have to go. When you factor that in and you say, okay, that's floating through his head as he's confronting Ben Stiller and he's just kind of like, oh, his oh, yeah. insecurities are coming. I, I It makes it a little, it humanizes him a little more in a way that I'd never really experienced in previous times. I mean, watching I, I say these things, cutting down his character and everything uh, really 
having to remind myself, you know, he's 23 or something and just the, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. gamut of emotions going through in a situation like that. Of course, he's his natural reaction is going to be to lash out against the world. And uh, yeah, backtracking to um, we kind of started off with the Steve's on thing. Yeah. Now kind of understanding that because um, like I said, when I watched the movie, I couldn't tell if that was like part of their just like joking around on her home movies or whatnot. But mm-hmm. now kind of reinterpreting it, I think that. I mean, I don't think it was groundbreaking for the time or anything like that. I think having that in the movie kind of would have spoke a little bit more to the time period. But yeah, I mean, that, that Steve Zahn struggling for his identity sounds a lot more interesting than hearing uh, <laughs> uh, Ethan Hawke's shitty band. So um, <clears throat> I wish they could have expanded on that a little more, but kept it within its runtime, which I appreciated. Yeah, uh, Helen, Helen Childress in one of the when they're talking because they have some interest for some of the deleted scenes and she was talking about how basically you know he had committed to deliver a specific runtime so they had to cut some stuff out we need more of that i need i need (laughs) contracts and movies i need them to have permitted runtimes otherwise you get monsters like judd aptow running rampant on the uh, the film industry um Winding down here, but hitting some points. Uh, number one, I got oddly emotional when Lisa Loeb's stay came on during the credits. <laughs> uh, this is one thing I made allusion to in Contrarian's Corner. Probably the most interesting fact I found about this movie. Quentin Tarantino had originally intended to include My Sharona on the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction. But when he went to obtain the rights, he found the song had already been licensed to this movie. So, <laughs> and inevitably, invariably, the question becomes... What scene was my Sharona going to be used for in Pulp Fiction? Um, the beginning? Like the, you know, instead of Mr. Lou? <laughs> yeah, instead, no, of, right? instead of Dick Dale, it's my Sharona. God, that would have been horrendous. How about that my Sharona uh, sequence, though? Because that is, you know, the, the, the reality bite scene. Yeah, I, I love it. It's I love so the, pure the, and juvenile. Yeah, the dancing uh, that's happening. And like you pointed out in in concerning this corner the fact that ethan hawk doesn't join in the dance he just like stays there and he looks a little awkward and he's ready to get the hell out of there oh it's great uh, yeah yeah that and the fact that the the guy the the clerk has to shut him down he's like hey because they start screaming or something it's just i love it uh, this you know and again a, a reason i can this movie can work for me and penetrate its way into my heart is because like i can relate to scenes like that i've literally lived through experiences like that and uh, it could just be white people shit, and that's why it resonates with me. But you know, um, <laughs> but I think that's the call to contrarians, listeners, anyone who wants to provide us with what scene in Pulp Fiction they thought my Sharona was going to be used for. <laughs> it's uh, instead of a girl, you'll be a woman soon. It's uh, my Sharona, or it's when uh, Bruce Willis pulls up and he's at the red light. And oh my god. So you just hear doom 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 motherfucker. <laughs> I think we have a winner because he's singing before that happens, so I could just totally see Will uh Bruce Willis going, My Sharona as he pulls up to the to the red light. And then fucking Kathy Griffin, the female Andy Dick, shows up on screen. <laughs> there's the there's the other overlap to this movie. Um so you know, it's an MTV generation movie. It's shocking that this was not MTV's first feature-length film. We had to wait another year, two years, for the Jerry O'Connell classic, Joe's Apartment. 
<laughs> which I'm curious when we'll finally get around to doing that for the podcast. But um, we had several listeners or um, contributors, excuse me, I guess they count as listeners as well, but several of our podcasting friends acknowledge uh, Janine Garofalo being the highlight of this movie for them. And I think that's a fair assessment for myself as well. With this and then Wet Hot American Summer would have been, um, well, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, seven years is not that much time. But she definitely did not age at all in between those. Uh, <laughs> I always thought 90s Jeanine Garofalo was super attractive, especially on Seinfeld. And here, I mean, uh, I read that she like had a really bad attitude and was originally fired from the movie just because she didn't want to rehearse. What? Yeah, but uh, Winona Ryder got her back. It sounded like Winona held a lot of this together. She was the reason Ethan Hawke got the job, and then she was the reason Janine Garofalo got the job. So, um, But that all being said, it it's the fucking perfect role for Janine Garofalo, much like, uh, I guess, in a similar vein, Kristen Stewart and Adventureland, since I keep drawing the parallels to those two, for what the time period was when the movie came out and for what was required for that role, it was just like so perfect. And um, yeah, she's this was my first Janine Garofalo experience. And so to me, she's always been to me for the longest time. She wasn't Janine Garofalo. She was, oh, Vicky from Reality Bites, which is perfectly fair. Um, and we covered trying to think if there's anything else we left out. Ben Stiller is just kind of there. He's this he's kind of the conscience of the movie in a certain aspect. But I don't feel like there's enough of it to like to evaluate his acting like we have been doing with these other ones. Cause if we did, we would just say he's Ben Stiller because it's pretty much, you know, kind of his neurotic, even not as extreme. Like I was expecting there at the end when the test screening of her show, she's disgusted by it. I was waiting for him to like, you know, go crazy Ben Stiller that we'd become accustomed (laughs) to in movie trailers that spanned from 1999 to 2006. Yeah, he, but I think that on one end, that's true. And then the other, he does kick it up a notch with just the the speech patterns. It's it's amazing how how many sentences he doesn't finish in this movie. I wanted to bring it up in the trans corner. I forgot because he's, most of his, his bits of dialogue are made up of fragments of sentences. He always starts saying something and then he, he stops and he starts saying th- something else. So that when he actually gets to finish the sentence where he has, I don't know, like a minute or two where he's just speaking completely coherently. It's it, it's pretty impressive. Uh, one of the deleted scenes was, I guess, sort of a coda to his character. And uh, like Ben Stiller says in the introduction to the deleted scene, it didn't really belong in the movie because it's not the Michael movie. The movie is about uh, Lena and also about Troy. But it's basically a scene where it's just him and when our writer officially breaking up where he's just saying, Hey, I, I guess, yeah, we can move on, but I, I would like to stay friends. And then she says, no, I don't think we should be friends. And it just kind of like sinks in. And then he's like, all right, I guess, I guess that's it. He actually, the, the last line he says in that scene is, uh, I guess this is why the cage bird sings, which I think it's a great callback to earlier in the movie. Yeah, But yeah, it's, I agree that, you know, he didn't need that closure, but I, I like the character. I think that it's, it provides a very uh, interesting counterpoint to everybody else in the movie, uh, whether it's 
Janine Garofalo or Steve Zahn or definitely uh, uh, Ethan Hawke or another writer. This is the guy that apparently has made it. Uh, but you know, how much of a sellout is he? Is he a sellout at all? I I, I like the the love triangle, even though you know, like I said, I think that this it skews too much to uh, the Ethan Hawke part. By the way, I speaking of the Janine Garofalo character, I love that she has a moment where she realizes because she gets a promotion at the Gap, mm-hmm. and then she has that moment that I think many of us have had where we're just at a job that we think is going to be temporary and then we start kind of like climbing up the ladder because we're pretty decent at it and then you have that moment where it sinks in and you go well maybe i'm going to be doing this for a lot longer because this is kind of becoming my place i've certainly had it considering that i've you know been working for the same company for over 15 years now but uh you know i i just the idea of of vicky the junior full character Working for the Gap as I don't know a district manager or whatever ten years down the line is uh, it I find it really amusing. Yeah, and there's a lot of as uh, we've talked about. If a movie has you, it has you, and if you've lived through some of the experiences like that in the movie, you can definitely relate to it. And just the idea of friendship being ruined from kisses or having sex and whatnot, mm. and it's all there's a lot of things that can be related to not by everybody, but for people like myself. Uh, it sounds like you and then also some of our listeners, this kind of shit can resonate pretty heavily. Um, so with all that being said, of course, we have to talk about the queen for the main event, the queen for whom the summer has been named uh, Winona Ryder. And that's uh, one of my things with her. And I think I've talked about this somewhat so far is sometimes, you know, in a, we've talked about Ethan Hawke being too much. I sometimes find Winona Ryder to be too much. Uh, and this was like the perfect amount of Winona ism. Um, cause it's not any part where like, so when I say too much, I mean like Winona Ryder in black Swan is what I always think of Winona Ryder being just really like over enunciating words and very like, uh, mouth opening very wide and just like very uh, overly emotive to the point of almost shtick. Whereas here it's just like, she has all those qualities of, you know, over enunciating words and being very uh, direct and confrontational and whatnot, but it all works for the Lelena character. And I think, I don't know, it's going to be hard to top this with the remaining uh, summer of Winona movies that we have coming up. Cause this really, for as much as I had heard, you know, as lauded as it is by friends of mine and people uh, a little bit older than me, I still kind of didn't know what to expect going into it. But it definitely kind of knocked me on my ass with how much I enjoyed it. And uh, looking over what remains, I think we will definitely be able to discuss what I mean by Winona Ryder being too much when we get to Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> That's definitely going to be the one word. <laughs> I, I lose my shit. So uh, I thought uh, I thought she was perfect. I thought this was like a perfect use of her skill set. Yeah, I think that uh, I don't know if it's it's a good thing or a bad thing that this is. I watched this movie so early in my Winona Ryder experience. I think I, I I mentioned in the Beetlejuice episode. I watched Beetlejuice when I was a kid, but I didn't really make the connection that it was the same actress uh, until much later. So in a way, to me, my first. Winona Ryder movie officially was Reality Bites. And to me, that became the standard. So, you know, you say that you when you think of uh, Winona Ryder performance, you think of Black Swan. To me, when I think of Winona Ryder performance, I think Reality Bites and everything else kind of just measures against that. Uh, I think I've, I've come to, over the past 
you know few weeks that we've been doing these movies and also you know just watching some stuff in the in the past few years that yeah she definitely can have an acting style that goes towards uh over emoting she can be very uh quirky i think ryan called it uh, when he said that she was just being extra quirky and extra twee and uh i think that there are movies where that doesn't really work there are movies where that works somewhat uh their movies were it's toned down to me it's like you said like this is the perfect balance I, I i think that she's funny but she still comes across as a real person i i texted you about this we're not it's not part of the summer of winona but i watched this movie she made with keanu reeves a couple of years ago called uh destination wedding and uh that is like full on quirk winona it's what the movie's asking from her and mm-hmm. in a way, what the movie's asking from Keanu Reeves is to be the complete opposite, to just deadpan everything. But when I was watching her there, at first, my first reaction was like, when was this shot? Because she seems so out of her game, having seen her now in, in the first season of Stranger Things. and But then I realized that, no, that's just kind of, I guess it could be one of her default modes if you don't give her a different direction or if the project doesn't call her to like tamp that down. She can tend to be just like, overly expressive and overly quirky. Uh, and I don't know if that's something that developed over the years or if that's something that just uh, was always there and really depended on who she was working with. Uh, I don't remember enough of Edward Scissorhands. I'm really curious to see how what her performance is like there. I don't think that we've really experienced it in the past few movies that we've done for the Summer of Winona that I can think of. So far, she seems she seemed mostly like under control. Uh, but like I said, I think last episode, to me, this is the Winona extract. This is like the essence. Uh, the Travolta had Saturday Night Fever and to me, Winona Ryder has reality bites. This is the Winona Ryder I grew up with, so to speak. And uh, when you have reality bites at the center... I don't know if you can hear me of, doing that, of, but that's me doing the chef's kiss with that comparison, that analogy. That's <laughs> marvelous. Yeah, but 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 it's... I mean, at least that's how I feel it. You know, and, and having the reality bites at the center of my Winona Ryder experience, it certainly affects how we watch everything else that happened afterwards. You know, in the 90s, when you've watched Winona Ryder on reality bites, and then you go and watch Alien Resurrection... That informs your experience of that movie in in a different way. I think that if you just go in cold or if you just haven't seen Reality Bites, so uh, yeah, to me it's you know once we get to the Winonis, it's gonna be hard not to have Reality Bites do like a sweep, mm-hmm. but uh, but we'll see. I mean, there's there, like I said, there's some movies I haven't seen and there's some uh, movies that I'm, I haven't revisited in a long time. So I'm I'm very very curious. Uh, also, by the way, that the movie Destination Wedding is not good. <laughs> it's it's worth it's worth a chuckle because you know most it's just Winona and Keanu for ninety minutes. There's no supporting characters. It's just them talking. And uh, if you're a fan of both of them or at least one of them, it I guess it's amusing enough to get you through it. Uh, I'm a fan of both of them, so I I put up with it. But it, it's not great. There's definitely we've done better movies uh, than this. Shockingly, um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So all that being said, I think. I would likely settle on a B rating for this movie because there are some things uh, that, you know, we, we talked about could be improved. But for the most part, yeah, I was very, very pleasantly uh, pleased and surprised with this. So I got I'll, I'll say a B for my rating. What about yourself? Um, if I was being objective and just fully acknowledging that the love story doesn't really work for me and that. The movie doesn't really, you know, there's, I think there's deeper, more complex movies that have been made about a similar subject matter. Uh, 
you know, I would give it like a four star. At the same time, giving Stiller and and Childress kind of like the credit of hey, they were not aiming to make something super profound. Uh, it does get an extra half a star though, just for the nostalgia factor and just the way that I think the cast is perfect. Uh, that they that they had, I guess, they were lucky enough to capture uh, Winona Ryder and uh, Janine Garofalo, even Ethan Hawke. You, at this point in their careers, where they were just really, I guess, blossoming into kind of what they were going to become a few years down the line. Uh, I think that's that's great. I may not care much for uh, what the movie, where the movie lines up with the Troy character, but I can still appreciate him as a construction of Ethan Hawke and just the way that he delivers those lines and he has that, that attitude. It's recognizable. And I don't know that I know any women that I knew any girls like Winona Ryder, but I can, I can relate to Gerald when he was saying on his clip that he kind of wanted to meet somebody like Winona Ryder. And so all that stuff, you know, it just carries a lot more uh, emotional baggage with me, the good kind. And he said, it's my adventure land. It's not my Empire Records, it's my adventure land. <laughs> so I'm, I'm settling on uh, four and a half. Excellent. All right, well, next on deck is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh. Yeah, again, blind spot. Never... Uh, <laughs> oh. should probably watch all the Dracula movies in one day. I... Many moons ago, I've seen the Bella Lugosi one, and that might be it. So this will be a this will be a hoot and a half. Um, Have you seen the cast? No. Winona, obviously, Keanu Reeves, and Gary Oldman. Okay, that's and, this movie. Okay. Yeah, and Anthony Hopkins. Well, of course, because why be there? Yes. <laughs> it's uh, I I haven't seen it in a while, but I've seen it more than once. And oh, it's I a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Wait. Yep. Okay. It's at Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Hell yeah. And Carrie uh, uh, Elves. Yes. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be a hoot. Monica Bellucci. My God. <laughs> Tom Waits. Okay. All, all hands on deck for this one. But that is going to wrap up Reality Bites. Uh, moving into our plugs, we have our perennial plugs, the festive years who provide our opening and closing track and also some supplemental music for our Summer of Winona, their website, uh, thefestiveyears.com. We'll satiate any and all festive years needs. Julio, we do have a pretty logo. We do. Uh, a logo was uh, designed by Hans Rothgieser, who's a... Uh, He's a renaissance man. He is a, uh, obviously an artist. He's a novel writer. He is a podcaster. He is, and I don't know if I've ever brought this up to you, Alex, for all these things that Han does. Do you know what he went to school for? What's that? Like his actual degree? He's an economist. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, I to me, I, because I listen to his podcast and I talk to him, he's my friend. So to me, him being an economist is part of his personality he's always it's not just he's not one of those economists that doesn't talk about economy he he generally brings up economy in discussions and uh, he's a he's a practicing economist and uh, but i just realized that whenever we plug his stuff here people wouldn't know that he's an economist he sounds just like a, like an artist right <laughs> but uh uh on the last episode i mentioned that he had a new podcast and that is that podcast is about economy as i was reading through it and downloading some episodes I was like oh it's it's just basically uh you know if reality bites is the purest form of winona writer this new podcast uh it's called marginal it's probably the purest form of hans rodgieser because <laughs> it's just it's just hans is an economist uh but yeah, you can you can listen to it on iTunes on uh, Spotify. It's called Marginal, 
I'll put in the, the links as well as, you know, the links for his uh, his other uh, Peruvian podcast, uh, Nación Combi. That and Marginal are both in Spanish. Nación Combi is just about Peruvian uh, current events. And then he has a podcast in English called Living in Peru. That one's on iVox. Uh, you know, like I said, he has his his uh, novels, his zombie novels. He has a website. Just go to uh, mildemonios.pe uh, to check out all his stuff. It's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also uh, reach to him on Twitter at Mildemonios or email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com. So, festive years, Hans, and of course, our social media guru, Ms. Zoe Perez, uh, brings the heat, brings you such wonderful and uh, interactive Instagram posts, and uh, yeah, really has an, uh, an eye for that that Julio and I do not, so we really appreciate her contributions and her support of our podcast. Yeah, she. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. She she managed to capture a really good screenshot of our of the live stream segment. Mm-hmm. I had been trying and I just gave up. And I was like, "Well, Zoe can probably do better." And she did. <laughs> so yeah, it was really good. She got it. Yeah, she got a shot where it's like all seven of us because there were seven of us in that in that segment, and we all look decent. Uh, we certainly you can tell we're having a good time. It's uh, yeah. That, that's great. So, uh, yeah, check out our Instagram. Uh, Zoe puts in a lot of work on it. Uh, it's at Contrarian Prime. As far as uh, any additional plugs, uh, TBD, I've, I am finishing Dead to Me this week, and uh, I have started a video game called L.A. Noir that is pretty dope, and I'm in- interested to see where it goes. It's one of those games that, like, has a cast of, like, real actors, Um <laughs> I don't know the guy who's the lead. Lillian knows him. Said he was in Mad Men. It's not John Hamm, but that's the only guy I know that's in. Mad and it's Men. not uh, Tony Stark's father, I guess. No, let me see if I can find fucker's name real quick. But um, kind of in a, a state of transition. I, I mean, I've played so many video games during the course of this. It's it's been something else. I I, I feel you. <laughs> Aaron Staten. Is the guy's name okay? He, yeah, he's a madman. He's not one of the like the main guys. He's a uh, one of the supporting ones. That's cool. He's, so he's like the main guy. Yeah, I've limited how much research I've done on it because I don't want to spoil the plot. But apparently, there was like uh, they implemented like new technology for the time to like help capture like their faces and reactions and shit like that. But also apparently working on this game was like a fucking nightmare for a lot of people. So I'm interested to play through it, finish it and then see what all the, the hubbub is about. But yeah, there's definitely uh, some recognizable faces in it. It's, it's interesting. It's uh it's by rockstar. It's, it uses an engine very similar to grand theft auto and it takes place in forties Los Angeles. And so obviously the scenery is really cool. Um, so far, so good. We'll keep y'all updated. I know you'll be waiting with bated breath. So, <laughs> did Alex finish that game finally? <laughs> finally. So, Julio, do you have anything? I I finally watched Risky Business. Um, mm-hmm. Yet another movie that I watch ahead of watching The Exorcist. <laughs> uh, it was okay. I I understand why it holds its place in pop culture the way it does, but I was not. Uh, I feel like I watched it too late in life for it to like really blow me away. It's an interesting bit of movie history. And it's if you have Hulu, you can watch it on Hulu. So uh, you don't have to pay extra for it. I would say just uh, check it out. And also, a little more on a more positive note, I also watched Just Mercy, which is uh, one of those movies that has been made available for free uh, by, uh, well, he's not a black filmmaker, but it's the same guy that did uh, uh, Short Term 12, which is, you know, my favorite movie of that year. Mm-hmm. This one has. Uh, 
Jamie Foxx and uh, who's the guy that plays Creed? Michael B. Jordan uh, with uh, Captain Marvel herself, Brie Larson, in a supporting role. Good movie. Kind of like a hard watch as most of these uh, based on a true story uh, legal dramas are. Mm-hmm. It, it was kind of like lost for award season. I think it was released like so late that most people have already kind of like made up their minds. And uh, because I'm, I'm surprised that there was no more buzz for there wasn't any buzz at all, at least that I can remember for Jamie Foxx's performance in it. Uh, I'm not I'm far from a Jamie Foxx fan uh, as far as, you know, his acting. But I, I think he's fantastic in, in Just Mercy and definitely nice. uh, one of the main reasons to watch the movie. So uh, I would check it out. It's Just Mercy is like free wherever you look for it <laughs> for the rest of the month, I think. So check it out. It's just a little over two hours. And like I said, the, the subject matter is it's hard, harder, you know, probably now, but Timely. definitely worth watching. Great performances. And and like I said, if you liked uh, Short Term 12, this is uh, not the guy's direct follow up because he did The Glass Castle a couple of years ago, which I, I haven't gotten around to it. And then this one, it's. He's certainly a filmmaker that that is making a name for himself. Uh, Dustin Cretton, I think, is uh, his name. Excellent. Like we've been trying to do in these difficult times, give you all uh, what we can to help pass the time, make things easier when when we can. So that wraps it up for Reality Bites. Once more on deck for episode. Uh, this will be a bonus episode, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's our, our bonus episode for June. Perfect. Bram Stoker's Dracula. I look forward to it after seeing that Whopper cast lineup. <laughs> but for now that's going to do it for myself and Julio that's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time Molitor.